Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. And as always, I just want to thank you for your listening support. If you haven't already, please rate and review us on your favorite podcasting platform. If you haven't uh, heard already, I launched a new podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations on predators in business, community, and culture. And we're discussing predatory patterns beyond the 3HO context. So please follow me over at gurunishan.com and continue listening to the conversations because it definitely expands beyond this cute community and this 3HO experience. However, three years ago, I started this podcast because there were several intentions of why this space mattered. And I like to read them at the beginning of every episode. Number one, to break the veil of silence that is long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from this community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and the overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community both named and unnamed. And number 11, to encourage people to do their own research, to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and cult-specific therapy, as well as other support as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to be critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. I'm pretty excited about our guest today, folks. I want to welcome Guru Ganesha Singh. He grew up in Natick, Massachusetts, 18 miles west of Boston. He graduated high school in the class of 1968. And in February 1972, 
he attended his first Kundalini yoga class at the Boathouse at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts. After seeing a Yogi Bhajan Tantricum picture on a flyer in the student union. Soon after, he attended a weekend Kundalini yoga retreat at Montague in, in Montague, Massachusetts with Guru Shabad Singh. Very soon after that, he moved into Worcester, Massachusetts ashram near Clark University, where he was a senior in college. In the first week of January 1973, he moved into Ahimsa ashram on Q Street in Washington, D.C., where he became a, the dishwasher at the Golden Temple Restaurant for many months. He was arranged to be married um, to Guru Darshankar, originally from Tucson, Arizona, in May 1977. They had their son, Akal Sahai Singh, in April 1978. In 1986, when their son was eight years old, Akal Sahai went to India for one year, which caused a rupture in Guru Ganesha Singh's marriage with Guru Darshan as she started divorce proceedings. In 1987, it was suggested by the head of the ashram that he marry Mata Mandarkar from the DC ashram. And they are still married 36 years later today. He worked for all of the DC ashram businesses through 1989, where he then resigned from the quote, family businesses and started his own company, Sandler Sales Institute a sales training in the high-tech sector. In January 2000, he founded Spirit Voyage Music and started recording and touring with Snotam Carr for the next 11 years. In 2011, he and Snotam parted ways and he started the Guru Ganesha Band. The revelations of 2020 exposed what he had held at a distance for far too long and the undeniable truth created a landslide. Most recently, after the results of the recent SSSC election. He immediately resigned from the Khalsa Council and the Sikh Dharma Ministry. Well, that was quite a bio. And I want to welcome you, Guru Ganesh Singh, to being with us on the podcast. And thank you for being here. Thanks, Guru Nishan. Thanks for doing these conversations. I want to ask you why you feel it's important to add your voice or to tell your story here. Well, I, I just want the survivors to know how much I love them, believe them, and support them. And also, I want to ensure that, you know, our children and our grandchildren aren't, uh, don't fall into these kind of situations where one individual is put way up on a pedestal and, and is considered to be infallible. Yeah. And uh, it's, it's, it's a formula for potentially for disaster, you know, and uh, so that's part of the reason. And the other part is I'm still processing. And sometimes I find having really in-depth conversations help me, you know, with my own processing. And, you know, I feel like I'm getting to a, to a good place in terms of my relationship with self, which got a little rocky for a while. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to just kind of context for listeners who you are to me. Um, I just love you so much. And I'm so happy that you're ready to come here. You know, we've talked since all this happened in 2020. And I was like, come tell your story. You know, and, and I really appreciate um, when somebody just knows like, yeah, not yet, but I will be open to that. And I always want to remind listeners, it's okay to just be a not yet. Like it's not time to tell your story. And then a different season, it can be like, okay, I'm ready. Um, and we have to trust our process. 
But I've always wanted to have this conversation with you because you've been such a, an instrumental force at many layers and levels of 3HO. You've also had, from my conversations with you early, you've had such interesting things happen that only by allowing yourself to see what you saw in 2020, did you start to really look back at some of these things and be like, whoa. I also want to add that your son, Akal Sahai, I didn't know who he was until the conversation of 2020. And I really appreciated his, um, his language, so much of what he brought to that 2020 language. Uh, shout out to you, Kalsa Heising. Um, it, it helped me so much understand the level of um, deception that took place in my will, even the language he brought to this conversation called light washing. Um, I thought he really brought some, uh, some levity and some perspective that really helped me have critical lens to get through the last couple of years. Um, so I know you've had those conversations with each other, which only gets oh, to, yeah, add to yeah. this no, conversation. I'm very proud of Akal Sahai. I mean, he's a great man in so many different ways. We could do a whole show on how yeah, great yeah, we... man he is. <laughs> um, I'm just qualifying would... <laughs> it because I know that you and I have talked offline and we've always known this conversation would come. And so that's why I'm happy to have you here. But in the history of Huguru Ganesha Singh is to me, he's always been one of my biggest sales supporters. So when I got into sales early on and he would come visiting as a musician to the Phoenix Ashram, um, one thing I always remember about you is that you were just unwielding support. If there was an unconditional uh, love that I could count on when I needed a sale, as long as I could represent what I was selling, you were willing to buy. And I just really appreciated that exchange. <laughs> so thank well, you. Well, <laughs> you have tremendous talent in that regard, just in terms of inspiring people to do what's in their best interest, which to me is my definition of sales, you know. <laughs> I love that. So go ahead and rewind what he just said, all of y'all that are so afraid of selling something or marketing something, and just hear that because we do. We 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 want to be told what 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 is it in our best interest, but we oftentimes don't know how to discern if that's the right thing. And people are do using manipulative tactics all the time, whether it's in sales or it's in spirituality. So um thank you for that. That well, redirect. I mean, sales is a very uh uh uh, it, it, a, uh, it can be a very beautiful profession if you're operating from a place of integrity and that your intention is to only do business if both parties are truly convinced it's the right thing to do. So yeah. I won't take this okay. off into a sales <laughs> training class. Um, yeah, exactly. But it just is a recent thing that's come up for me because I remember um, you weren't in the Phoenix Ashram, but you were visiting for a while in different times. And I just remember what a, a receptive audience I saw in you. And it was only be years later that I realized you had started a sales institute and you taught this for a living. And oh, no wonder he was so kind and helping me become a better salesperson. Um, uh, but anyways, I also want to uh, say that's that what, that's what financed the trips to Phoenix and spirit. And we were we were recording Sonatum Livtar and I were recording with Livsing, Invincible Recording in Phoenix. Right. The first two or three albums. Right. And, okay. Yes. And it was the sales training business that financed Spirit Voyage. So I was grateful to be able to make some good use of some of the profits. Mm, mm, yeah. So you're going to have to tell this story because this is fantastic. Yes. And I don't think a lot of people even knew your your history of, of sales training. And then as people well think as... Spirit Voyage was a Dharmic business. Well, it was Dharmic in that there were Dharmic people who owned it and ran it, but it wasn't run by Yogi Bhajan or anybody else. You know, I, it started yeah. off run by me, founded and financed by me. And then I brought Cutin on, who is a, such a great soul. 
about four or five years later when I was just way too busy touring with Sonatum to run the company anymore. You know, got we it, get got into it. that later. Exactly. This is fantastic. So start where you want to start. Do you want to take us back to when you start or, or where do you want to begin? Uh, well, yeah, maybe a little background. Uh, I think you gave some nice background there. And, uh, you know, when I was uh, uh, got into college in 68, it was a few months after my father had passed away unexpectedly, hmm. which was pretty devastating for me because we were, you know, sometimes fathers and sons uh, are really good buddies. And I had that kind of relationship my, with my dad. He was a, he was an entertainer. He, he toured with Bob Hope during World War II with the USO entertaining the troops. So it's, it's, it's probably no accident that I ended up getting into the music entertainment business to a certain extent. Um, but uh, when he passed away, I went into, I can, I can recognize it now. I went into a pretty deep depression. And because uh, whenever I was with my dad, I was laughing constantly. He was such a funny guy. So I, you know, to me, humor is is almost as close to divinity as you can get, you know, to be able to laugh and not take yourself too seriously. But I, I realized when I met Yogi Bhajan that one of the reasons that I was so drawn to him uh, was that he made me laugh. So I kind of embraced him almost as a replacement father figure. And I've talked to a lot of Gen 1 folks who had similar things that he kind of became their surrogate father, you know, either they had a horrific relationship with their father or their father wasn't there or their father had passed. So all of a sudden, you know, he took on that role, spiritual father. And, uh, you know, it was a big responsibility that he took on, you know, calling himself a great yogi and a spiritual teacher and, uh, you know, the head of Sikhism in the Western Hemisphere. That's a big responsibility and a lot to live up to. An understatement. Uh, yeah. Understatement. <laughs> <laughs> um, to take that on and also to let others take that on in assumption that yeah. he could hold that, right? That he could hold all them in his subtle body, right? Yeah, because, you know, I, I, I do, I guess I'm one of those folks who think it's important to walk your talk. And uh, uh, so uh, there was a lot of talk about his greatness. Yeah, and Not one thing that's him, but the you know the inner circle around him, we we all kind of drank that Kool Aid. So give us a lens into that, because when I read your bio and look through it, and and maybe this helps you drop into that time a little bit, is one thing that stood out to me around it was just the speed, right? So your first class is 1972. And then no. by 1973, that's just a year later, because that was February 1972, a year later, um, you're moving into the ashram. So yeah, you had some other Kundalini experiences. Guru Shabad Singh was obviously a great historical teacher. We've heard a lot about him. Um, but he ends up leaving, however long later. So that would be interesting to hear. But you're now moving into Ahimsa. You're also now becoming the dishwasher to lots of people working for Golden Temple. You got the full family atmosphere. You found it. And then 1977, right, just four years later, uh, you're married and with a kid. Well, that was a good observation. It happened. It was a really accelerated pace. You know, so from 68 to 72, when I was at Clark University, 
I, I barely attended any classes. I became a grateful deadhead. Loved, I mean, I still call Jerry Garcia my first guru, although I no longer have gurus other than the, you know, I'm still a Sikh, so the, I relate to the city. Guru Granth Sahib is a great teacher. But uh, so I started a rock and roll band patterned after the Grateful Dead. I was the lead guitar player because, you know, I just loved the way Jerry played the guitar would, you know, take me off into some realms that I'd never been before. It actually, I remember because I was in that depression from my father's death, but his guitar playing just gave me hope that if, if someone could play the guitar that expressively and that beautifully, then maybe life could be a really great adventure, you know? So I started the band and since we were an acid rock band, we, we we tried to live up to the genre, even in rehearsals. So I, I probably, I calculated I had about 150 to 200 LSD trips between 68 and 72. But then I got to the point in early in 72, right before I attended my first Kundalini yoga class, where there was this voice deep within me that was saying, hey, man, you better find an alternative way to feel good or you're going to die. Because it wasn't just, uh, you know, I joked that I majored in chemistry in college and made my body in the test tube and dumped every conceivable chemical known to me. It's amazing that I survived. So um, I was, and I had started, I got interested in yoga even before I met Yogi Bhajan. I was reading uh, the complete illustrated book of yoga, which is a really big book. It's a Hatha yoga book. Can't even remember the name of the guy who wrote it, but I, what I liked about it, it had big pictures on every page and I was trying to get myself into all the postures and struggling and realizing, boy, I need a teacher. I was really digging yoga. It felt good. And um, then I started reading Vivekananda's book, uh, Raja Yoga. He's the guy who wrote all the, if, he lived in the early 1900s, late 1800s came to this country in 1913, gave lectures about yoga. And uh, uh, I, I know he touched a lot of people. But in that book, it said, when the consciousness is ready, the teacher will manifest on the physical plane. And uh, that's kind of stuck in my mind. And so for a while, I was like, okay. You know, my antenna was up to find my teacher. And uh, when I saw that traffic, my band was uh, uh, hired at, to play at Smith College for Mixer, because it, at that time it was just 100% uh, a woman's school. And they had invited the guys from Holy Cross and Worcester Polytech, hired my band Cat's Cradle to play. After soundcheck, I'm sitting in the student union, and somebody's walking around with flyers, and I almost kind of observed a voice come out of myself, say, I'll have one of those. The person turns around, comes walking towards me, holding the flyer, and it's the Traticum picture. And I look at it, and I remember my self-talk was, ah, maybe that's him, because he looked very yogic, you know? There weren't a lot of guys in the U.S. at that time walking around with big turbans and, you know, blazing eyes and long beard. At the time, he had a you know, the Traticum picture had a long dark jet black, dark yeah. jet black beard. And it's a real easy picture to get fetishized, right? Because he has that yeah, pristine yeah. turban and that kind of stern look that's kind of like 
uh, it either could be drawing you in or it could be piercing you away. It could do either direction. That's right. And it really impacted me. And it said, okay, classes in Kundalini yoga as taught by Yogi Bhajan, the Smith College Boathouse. And uh, the next class was going to be like Thursday night of, you know, the following Thursday. So I made a mental note. I didn't have a vehicle at the time I was living. I had been uh, 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 the lyricist for our band who also taught at, at uh, Clark University. Had I had my third bad acid trip. And I was literally walking down Highland Street in Worcester, like howling like a wolf, looking at the moon, seeing Jesus in the clouds. And he saw me and he thought I was in a little bit of distress. He picked me up. He says, what's going on, man? And I babbled something. He says, I'm going to take you to my friends. And he, we literally, we drove about two hours out to Williamsburg, Massachusetts, then six, seven miles into the woods to a little log cabin. And he and there was a, a young couple there who had, were doing yoga. They weren't doing kundalini yoga. They were just doing hatha yoga. They had become vegetarian. I was a big meat eater, big beer drinker, big LSD user. And they dro he dropped me there and he says, they, he, 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 I guess, had called them or something and told them that he was bringing me. And uh, uh, they took care of me for a couple of weeks. And um, uh, that's when I got started to get exposed to all these books on. They had a library of yoga books and they would both go to work during the day. And I'm sitting there. I agreed to split some wood for them for the fireplace because, you know, they had a wood burning stove. But then I sat around most of the day pulling books uh, off the shelves and reading. And that's where I uh, uh, started getting in the complete illustrated book of yoga. They had like a big deer skin or bear skin. And I'm, I'm trying to put myself like uh, into postures. And uh, and then I read the, uh, the Vivekananda book. But in any event, so I was out there when I went to, uh, uh, went to Smith. And so the following Thursday, I hitchhiked from the cabin to the class. And the entire class, I thought it was Yogi Bhajan. It was Bhagwan Singh, you know, Paramatma's dad. That's who the teacher was at your yeah. first class. Yeah, yeah. he was Smith. living at the uh, at the Montague Ashram where, you know, Guru Shabad was the main teacher there. And he came with a, 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 a young man from Puerto Rico I'm trying to remember, he had, he's had a couple of different names, but he ended up marrying Gigi. Uh, oh. But uh, I think his name was Sat Pavan at the time, Sat Rodden. And he had a little nylon string guitar, so Bhagwan Singh taught the class. I thought the class was great. Started, there was only four or five people there, and he's sitting right in front of me, and the first exercise was stretch pose. And I'd never had my left of my legs up for uh, off the ground for even, a, you know, 10 seconds, let alone three minutes. The whole time I felt like it was yelling at me, keep up, keep up. After three minutes of stretch pose, after never having done Kundalini yoga or Breath of Fire, I went into this, uh, you know, a, a deep relax. Uh, and, and I felt like, oh, this is astral traveling because I'd also read Yogananda's book. I'm astral traveling. This is even better than LSD. So at the end of the class, oh, then we did the, you know, we did the whole set. Then we did a longer deep relaxation. At the end of that deep relaxation, he brought us back, you know, all this. 
And uh, Sat Ratan started to play the nylon guitar beautifully and sing a Guru Guru Vai, Guru Guru Ram Das, Guru Chan. I had no idea what the words meant. All of a sudden, I'm sitting there and just the floodgates open. Tears start pouring out of my eyes. And I knew it wasn't tears of sadness. It was just, I felt like, uh, you know, on a certain level, I'd come home. So even to this day, I've just got this beautiful relationship with Guru Ramdas, you know, who I, I considered kind of to be a guardian angel. You know how we we all tend to personalize God, you know. Well, he also painted that. So we'll wait to get to that yeah, story. Yeah, but he very yeah. much infused that relationship of Guru Ramdas, protection, connection. I mean, yeah. it, it was so much Humility. delivered. Humility. Like, so there's no same thing with guru nanak um yeah i feel yeah. i had just said on this last episode that some of us i feel like what i've heard is that guru nanak's the relationships the way i see it maybe as a coping mechanism like how do you hold on to something that is true in the midst of so much that's not true um and we find our personal ways to do that but anyway so you had a personal connection with guru ramdas yeah i, I just well you know started with you know when your heart gets opened and those kind of tears, I call them the nectar of devotion, those kind of mm. tears come mm. through. You can, you're, you you get almost immediately get emotionally attached to that, which of course it's coming from inside me, but I immediately thought, oh. Absolutely. budget right here. It's Or this it's this mantra. practice, it's this mantra, it's all the things, right? So at the end of the class, I go up the Bhagwan sink. Mm. He's kind of a tall guy, you know, similar height as Yogi Bhajan, although I didn't know how tall Yogi Bhajan was. I went up and I said, Mr. Bhajan. And he goes, ha, 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 I'm not Yogi Bhajan. Well, I said, well, then I don't know who you are or where you guys come from, but take me with you. That's exactly what happened. And they looked at each other and chuckled and they said, okay. They had come in a pickup truck. They put, you know, and there was all sorts of restaurant stuff because there was a diner, Golden Temple Diner in Northampton, very close to where the class was. They put me in the front seat. And here I am going with these two turban dudes who I had just met. But I, you know, I felt comfortable with them. And they stopped at the at the Golden Temple Diner. And I met Soul Singh there who remains my good friend to this day. He was working there. And there was also this absolutely radiant goddess working there, you know, uh, 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 that I immediately fell in love with. And she served me a hot cup of yoga, yogi tea. So, I mean, boom, it was like <laughs> hook, line and sinker. Trifecta right there. Trifecta. <laughs> and then they drove me to the, to the ashram. And sure enough, I'm arriving on a Thursday evening and it was like the beginning 66 people are were uh, converging on the ashram for a four day weekend intent or a weekend intensive that went Thursday night through Sunday. And, and so they invited me to stay for the intensive. And, uh, I, and at one point they said, yeah, and we're going to get you up about two 30. I said, two 30. That's perfect. That's I'm a musician. I get up about two, three o'clock in the afternoon every day. They said, no, no, 2.30 a.m. I said, get the F out of here. 2.30. So, hey, when in Rome, right, 
you do as the Romans did. So I slept in the sod room there with about 50 other people. And uh, and before you know it, we had about 30 seconds to go in and take a cold rinse. And I was there for the weekend and I pretty much got hooked by the end of that. So pause. If I hear you say after your first class, you followed the teachers, joined them and went right to that weekend workshop. I had no idea, you know, and I well, and they didn't yeah. really pitch me on it. I of course just, not. No, okay, no, you're just it. you're just and pulled sure into the enough, life. So, but I, you know, I, I want to point out the what the beauty of what I'm hearing here is is it it's the built-in love bombing, right? It's like you had already been like you had given us the little paveway in terms of you had already had on your radar you need a teacher because these books and all all of the yogi, no matter what kind of yogi conversations were being had this revelations, this time to kind of like treat your own body better, this type of stuff. And here it comes to you. So you're just kind of seeing it as divine intervention in some capacity. Um, but also the loving warmness around yeah, who those men were at, right? What it means to have teachers that have five people in a room and suddenly you're like, wow, like, and then you go meet other beautiful people and then they have their own kitchen. And so it's like, it's all just like, and then you go right into an entire full weekend workshop, which anybody who's, who's gotten into the love fest of a Kundalini weekend, you get the, right. You have the early morning to the evening. Oh, so you're yeah. eating together, communing together, having tea together. You're having emotional experiences of laughter to tears. Some of it's personal. Some of it feels collective and it's all happening within your first Kundalini yoga exposure. Yeah, and the feelings evoked, as close as I could come to describing it would be the feeling I had when I was at Woodstock Mm. in 1969 and arrived there on a Saturday afternoon after a 22-mile walk on 87. And just the feeling of looking out and the feeling of community and of tribe and uh, the music. I would say it was the music always that was uh, the... The driving force for me, I think, you know, I, 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 uh, it's a very musical community. I mean, Montague Gershub had played at the end of the first sadhana of the, on Friday morning of the retreat, he starts playing some of his songs and I'm just crying again. They're so beautiful. And, uh, then eventually, uh, you know, I went back to Worcester and I became the musician at that ashram with just three single men. And I'm like, hey, I can do this. I started composing Guramdas chants. And uh, it was very intoxicating, and especially when I got to Washington, D.C. Wow. the the Every single morning we did 31 minutes of Guru Guru Ai Guru Guru Ram Das Guru as part of the sadhana. And everybody played, you know, uh, Peter Alexander, Sat Peter was there at that time. Sant Ram was there. Um, Satnam Kar had her flute. Uh, there Bhagwan were two- Singh and Bhagwan Kar both, oh, both sang, sang right? They both there. sang. And uh, it was a, it was a phenomenal, uh, uh, and, and that kind of sealed it off for me because for me it was, I always, I guess because three of my four grandparents are Jewish, they, they uh, we Jews kind of uh, joked that we're still looking for the lost tribe. Well, I, I kind of felt like I had found the lost tribe, you know, and it was 3HO. And uh, so uh, uh, very uh, an hour at a, uh, we're at a hymns. Do you have any more questions about the. No, uh, no, that gave Montague. us a really good picture. Yeah. So then you end up, how do you end up going from Montague to DC? Teachers training. 
<laughs> Good one. Teacher's training. <laughs> and the head of the Worcester Ashram, Guru Jeet Singh, uh, uh, said to me, uh, you know, uh, Gurga, uh, I wasn't Gurganesh at the time. They was Fly Mike. That's what uh, your name was, Fly well, Mike. Well, my name was Mike, but they call, the band all called me Fly Mike because I was always flying. You know, <laughs> even to this day, there's still a few members of the original Cats Cradle alive, and they still call me Fly. They don't oh, even use my the God. Mic. I don't know if you're ever gonna get rid of that one for me, uh, Fly. All right, keep going. Well, I, I actually, at the time, I kind of liked the nickname, you know, it was kind of, it, it meant I was not normal. You know, it's funny. I joked that I, you know, I was a rebel in the late 60s. I was laying in front of the ROTC office at Clark University, protesting the Vietnam War. And I and I kind of dug Yogi Bhajan in the beginning because he seemed like a rebel, too. You know, everybody else was telling us hippies to cut our hair. I had stopped cutting my hair long before I got in the 3HO. And here's this guy from India uh, with a, you know, with a magnetic presence say, hey, don't cut your hair. You're, you should keep your hair. It conducts electromagnetic energy. You're going to be stronger. Da, da, da. It takes vitamin uh, E or vitamin D from the sun and all of that. And I'm going like, wow, this guy is so cool. Everybody else is telling me to get a haircut, you dirty hippie. And he's saying, no, keep your hair. Mm. So there it was a harmonic convergence of a lot of stuff. And one might even say, I mean, there's a deep part of me that kind of feels like, uh, you know, it was the, the goddess herself who delivered 3HO to me. You know, La, Lao Tzu once said, and I wrote this down, he said, when the student is ready, the teacher appears. But he said something else that uh, Vivekananda didn't say. And he also said, but when the student is truly ready, the teacher disappears. And I, for me, that kind of sums up, I think, what happened to me. Because, you know, Yogi G appeared at a time when I actually needed some guidance. I needed somebody with some strong conviction to kind of give me a little discipline in my life, you know. And... Uh, you know, he kind of left as I disembraced him as my spiritual teacher when I became convinced that he, uh, you know, didn't walk the talk. And that was in 2020 for you. Yeah, that was in, you know, there were inklings of it that I didn't, you know, I didn't really believe leading up into it. But the, I, I was one of the people, early Gen 1 people who took the time to not just listen to people on the listening tour, but talk to some of these folks some of them called me firsthand because they I was I guess I'm a trusted uncle uh uh some of the folks who weren't quite ready to open up to the public called me and said hey Gurganesha I'm I'm about to do this so pause I want listeners to hear that what you're talking to about right now is that some of the women that were directly abused by YB directly over long periods of time that didn't necessarily want to have their name in the public atmosphere that we're going to definitely report their pieces of harm um, we're definitely speaking say with you and cut in in the background some trusted sources because you and her and some of these other East Coast names of people represent um People, and I wouldn't say inner, inner circle, but people on the inner elite circle that were connected to as high as up as you could go to YB. So there were layers of trust and uh, transparency that I think you guys represent, that there's um, the zone. And so that's what you were just referring to was that 
you are that trusted person that during all these revelations, some people called you, even if they couldn't necessarily speak publicly about it. Yeah, they were, you know, beloved nieces, like, uh, you know, that that trusted me. Sure. And that uh, and uh, they 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 wanted to unburden themselves. They weren't ready to do it in public, you know. Sure. In one so, instance, she selected like 12, 13 people as, as part of her process to kind of unburden herself from all this stuff. I mean, it was, you know, there was carrots and sticks used to keep these people quiet for, for so long. Wow. And, wow. you know, I, I, and, and uh, there are a lot of folks currently on the planet that just can't accept reality. And there's still a lot of them in 3HO, you know, that. And, and, and understatement, I also want to pause and just say, and you know those people, and not only do you know them, but you know them well, let's let's take it back. So you're talking about it being a Himza, as we've heard, so Peter was there, right? Early musician, yeah. Live Tar, yeah. right? Early musician. So keep taking us there because somewhere around here, now we've heard that, uh, Guru Jot Singh is in the mix of Ahimsa. Is that there already or does that come later? No, because Guru Jot Singh first. was there already or he okay. came right around the time I came kind of to assist Letty. Letty and Gunga were running the ashram in the early 70s. Yep. And then I can't remember if Guru Jot Singh was sent there. I, he had been in St. Louis prior to that. I, I can't remember what was the exact reason he was sent there to assist but, you know, for quite a while, Letty and Gurjot were very tight. You know, they were playing golf almost every afternoon while we we're in the restaurant. You know, we'd see them go out the back door while I'm in the corner watching dishes. And there was a, there was some uh, negative utterings about it, too, at the time. It's like, damn this. And I'm like back there, teachers training. This is bullshit, you know. But I when I got down, you know, I, I, I was really prideful when... When Gurjeet told me to go back to that story, when Gurjeet said, you know, Gurganesha, we think you're uh, teacher material. You should, there's a teacher's training course happening in Washington, D.C. We think you should go down there and become a teacher. And I'm like, kind of felt puffed up. Wow, I'm teacher material. And I'm thinking, yeah, maybe I can do this stuff, sit up on the pedestal. And, you know, and the I, it was very, it, even at the hymns, it was very pedestalized, you know. We had a stage and a little teacher seat. So whoever was teaching at Ahimsa and most of the classes were taught. Uh, Peter taught a lot of classes. I ended up teaching a lot of classes. Gurjo taught classes. Levy taught some meditation classes. But we were like really, you know, I think a lot of us young guys were kind of modeling YB's behavior, you know. And well, kind of, and not just that, but it was kind of like, that's what was emulated. It's not even you think it's kind of like, it's a match and model system, right? And if you've, if you just started, and then you end up taking a class, and then you end up in a group, how are you learning what to do in a group? Well, you're paying attention to what other people do. And so of course, you're going to follow the model teacher. And so if he creates a system, who are his head guys? And so Larry is a head guy for a while. And then Guru Jot Singh is and Peter described that a lot in his episode where you're matching and modeling who you're being led to match and model. That's a very natural thing. You don't even your brain doesn't even catch that. You just match and model what you're trained to match and model within a system that's saying this is the operating system of this ethos. Yeah, and I was a 21-year-old guy who had the fantasy to be a rock and roll star, which wasn't quite happening. 
So now I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, maybe this is my vehicle for being somebody. Because, you know, I think, you know, and I, I, I don't want to genderize this, but That's I think crazy. men in particular growing up in this culture kind of have the have a have a strong feeling that they need to be somebody. It's not just enough to be, you've got to become somebody. You need to be looked up to. And I thought, ah, because I was always a really good yogi. For some reason, I was blessed with a very flexible body so I could do stuff that nobody else could do. And that started, I started to develop my own little spiritual ego. Well, you know, hey, maybe I can be one of the, uh, you know, when I didn't get named a Mokya Singh Sahib, I remember, and other people were being named Mokya Singh Sahibs, I was kind of upset, upset. I forced myself into, into the ministry. But so the, you, you could know, get a, so, so that you could get a Mukia title? Well, not, I didn't get a Mukia, I got a Singh Sahib, you know, and, and later on, I realized it was funny. I was saying, yeah, yeah, I was a rebel. When I got into this and 10 years in, I'm, I, at one point, I remember thinking, wow, I've kind of become a sheep. I went but from this is many years. <laughs> this is many years later where you're talking about the Mukias and the Singh Sahibs, right? This is yeah, I guess that happened in the 80s and so forth. Okay, but so hold tight because I want to get there. These things are really important to like that's feeding parts of you that are underdeveloped, right? That we do. We do yeah. want to matter. We do want to feel important and we want to feel like we can create an impact. There's nothing wrong with these things. But you went from seeing that that potential is happening in your band to seeing that that potential could possibly happen in this newfound place as a potential teacher and bring your musical skills to this community that obviously needed it, loved it, and it was increasing consciousness for the planet. Yeah. And I think Peter would acknowledge it. Hey, as a young man, as a musician at the time, you know, music was in its height in the late 60s, early 70s, rock and roll. And, you know, part of it was, yeah, I want to be a rock and roll star. Maybe secretly, I want to have groupies, and all this kind of stuff. And here we would see when I first met Yogi G surrounded by all these gorgeous women, I'm thinking, wow, geez, maybe I can become a yogi uh, deserving of that. That was still the rock and roll fan fantasy manifesting in a different way. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think you're painting a really good picture for us to understand how the men leaders of the ashrams were going to emulate that right? Emulate what you saw Yogiji doing oh, yeah. with having the beautiful women around and how he commanded. Um, so you, you go down to, to, to DC for teacher training. How long is teacher training? There was really no teacher's training. The story <laughs> is I, I get picked up at the bus station and by Bhagwan Singh again, and he's driving what we call the carryall, another pickup truck with all sorts of stuff in the back. And there was no room for me in the front, so they put me in the back. And uh, uh, he drives me to the back of the restaurant, you know. And I said, uh, uh, you know, what should I do here? He said, just go up to the back door, knock on the door, and uh, uh, just tell them you're here for teacher's training. They'll know what to do with you. I said, okay, all right, sounds good. Thanks a million. I go and knock up in the back door. And I can't quite remember what maybe it was Sadasat Singh, the restaurant. Somebody comes to the back door holding them up. And they looked at me and I, you know, I, I got a headband on, long hair. You know, I look like a classic Woodstock hippie. And uh, he, he said, well, what are you here for? I said, I'm here for teacher's training. And he gave, he gave me this look and he laughs and he handed me the mop. And I said, what's this? 
I hadn't done an honest day's work in my life up till then. I said, what's this? He said, teacher's training. You're on late night cleanup tonight. And that was teacher's training. And I, I, and I remember I tell this story after about a month of working 16, 18 hours in the uh, dishwasher's corner where all the new recruits immediately were put. You know, I'm back there and I was... I was getting really negative. I'm like back there, everything, the pots are piling up. The waitresses are coming back, holding forks that I had, uh, you know, hadn't done a good job on. There's a big particle of food hanging there. And I'm going, teacher's training. This is bullshit, teacher's training. And then somebody comes up to me. Uh, they were uh, they were a higher caste. They're one of the dish, uh, one of the vegetable choppers said to me, you know, uh, I see you every morning in sadhana. You got your guitar out. You're chanting to Guru Ramdas. You're, uh, you know, you're in. You're, you got tears coming out of your eyes. You look like the most devoted guy in the community. You put yourself 110 percent into the yoga. And then I see you here every day at the restaurant, 11 o'clock, and you're like the most negative guy in the community. So why don't you make believe that uh, the uh, sprayer is a guitar? And uh, chant the Guru Ramdas, you know, work is worship, chant, you know, and I started to do it. And interestingly enough, before you knew it, I had a big, healthy voice. Guru, Guru, hey, Guru, Guru Ramdas, Guru. Before you know it, the whole kitchen is chanting the Guru Ramdas. And I look down, the pots are all gone. And the thing is, so that's, I kind of learned the power of mantra back in that kitchen from that day forward i wouldn't say i was 100 percent, but whenever i start to get negative i shifted over to chanting to guru ramdas out loud you know sure. so i had some really beautiful experiences in the early days mostly related to community and uh, music and my memories are around the music the sadhana music and then at every night at 10 o'clock in the restaurant when we were closing up We'd stop work and we'd all go out front. Sap Peter would show up sometimes. I, I'd have a guitar there. We'd be playing out front and we'd be singing, working at the Golden Temple. That was kind of the heyday. It, it never really got higher than that for me than the early days of the hymns, you know, 21, 22, singing together. We had 120 people living in about four or five houses. And uh, so... Um, that's where things stood. Then I then I got moved because people said, oh, this Gurganesha guy, he's a positive guy. This is after I started chanting. They opened up what's called Sadhanam Pottery Works. And uh, I was invited to uh, become a potter with uh, Gersher's husband, uh, Gersher Singh at the time, he's now George, and uh, uh, Sirgunkar, Satnarayan Singh. Now, Sergun and Satnarayan were artists, you know. So I ended up, George and I uh, were not very good potters. So we ended up, me in particular, ended up being the salesperson. They'd make, uh, Sergun and Satnarayan would make the pots and I'd go around and sell them. And then uh, I did that for a few, then the Shakti Shoe thing started. First, we, Birkenstock, we became the exclusive Eastern distributors of Birkenstock. I mean, the the early day, uh, stage businesses were had integrity. Were you, you working with uh, Sat Hanuman? 
at, at different times. Yeah, well, Saad Hahnemann was in Millis, and Saad Hahnemann was working at the uh, Golden Temple Emporium in Cambridge, which was one of our best customers. We were their wholesale supplier, first of Birkenstocks. They became one of the top sellers of Birkenstock, maybe the top sellers of Birkenstock in the East. And then, then we, uh, you know, Letty uh, got the idea, okay, Birkenstocks are so popular, even though we're in mostly cold weather, most of our customers, you know, you could only wear the sandals three or four months. He came up with the idea of inserting that footbed into a closed shoe. Carl Birkenstock never signed off on it, but eh, we kind of knocked it off a little bit at the time and started Shakti Shoes. It was a little different, enough to have its own, uh, what do you call it? Proprietary. Trademark or something. Mm -hmm. And boom, I, I became, uh, Gersher Singh and I became the main salesman for Shakti Shoes. I traveled, I sold Shakti Shoes in 39 states. Ended now, up in, was this Guru no. Jodh Singh's company? No, no, no. This was the community's company. This, so this was actually the started by the D.C. ashram? Yeah, yeah. Interestingly, Letty and Gurjot had set, had, uh, set up the D.C. businesses as separate. So even now, uh, you know, you have a lot of business and property under the SSC umbrella. Uh Actually, there aren't any really any more DC businesses, but uh, the right. DC businesses they kept themselves somewhat independent, you know. So, for example, the properties here are all, all owned by individuals. Right. My wife and I bought a, you know, I, I'm living in a house now for um, our entire marriage, like 36 years in the Herndon cul-de-sac community, you know. Well, I'm going to have questions about that because there was a story in terms of um, how the individual families were asked to set their mortgage up to help Goody Goat and get out of jail. Uh, but we're not at that section yet. So I want to keep your still at Ahimsa. You got to um, remember, I have a, uh, a uh, I have a severe case of ADD, so I can segue that's off. That's okay. That's why I'm going to pause you. Yeah, you. I'm going to pause you and keep you. I'm like, no, no, we're still in the 70s. Um, I, what I'm wondering, you're getting into the sales things and you have quite a lens on the sales and the businesses. So what you were, we were beginning to say was those early businesses were, quote, integral businesses so you're talking about these shakti shoes are you married yet or are you still a single guy in a in a himza uh no i wasn't married yet I, okay you know, so keep going I just wanted to... 73 to 76 okay got it. i was a single guy and i was you know i i uh, for a while i worked in the golden temple emporium selling the birkenstocks okay. then i went on the road selling the birkenstocks and with shakti shoe was uh, shoes were rolled out and I think around 75 I was the main salesman uh Gersher Singh was the sales manager and I literally they gave me a uh oh, I don't know a, a vehicle and the ladies there made me a Guru Ramdas tape that the Adi Shakti choir was based and I and that was in the days of the and I played that uh that uh, cassette non-stop for hundreds of hours until it finally died i was in wyoming or something and i literally was grieving the loss of that cassette you know it's not like streaming today you know <laughs> <laughs> okay so you're becoming quite a salesman you're working for the family businesses here you're selling the shoes that obviously were part of our own family i before. sold hundreds of thousands of dollars in one year alone i sold over a million dollars of shakti shoes and the funny thing was I had sold them in all these different states, but 
most people, you know, I walked, I cold call, literally walked into stores, four or five, six stores a day cold, out of the blue, turban, white golf shirt, khakis, you know, and uh, start cracking a, a self-deprecating joke. And certain percentage of the people would laugh. Then I'd ask them if I could show them my unique footwear, you know. And if they laughed at my joke, usually I said, okay, if they didn't laugh at my joke, I was out on my rear end back to the car. But uh, uh, but when I entered into California, after doing Washington State, Oregon, entered into Eureka, California, and I went to a store and I showed them chocolate shoes and a lot of stores, I mainly was calling on the stores in California that carried Birkenstocks. People would go, oh my God, those are beautiful. And I was like, really, you like them? And I called the uh, Letty and Gerd joke back. I said, guys, you're not gonna believe it. I just entered into California and they love the shoes here. And they're like, really? They love the shoes? I said, yeah. And Gerjot said, well, you better find yourself a place to live then. And I ended up uh, living in um, uh, San Jose, California. It was right around that time that I started to feel like, boy, I was missing female companionship. And I had been celibate from the time I joined the ashram, which was about four or five years ago. Mm-hmm. So I and and in California, you know, the women just look magnificent to me. And uh, so I'm calling back. I call Gershaw. I said, Gershaw, I'm dying out here, man. I'm, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to stick to my vows. You got to get me married. And uh, he said, well, you better find your own wife because Letty's not marrying anybody off anymore. I said, really? There was a lot of single ladies in the community and there were one or two of them that I would have been very grateful to be married to. And um, so I started trying to find my own wife and I was on a sales trip through Denver, you know, the, uh, Huddy Singh's ashram there, Huddy Singh in a Huddy car. I He's was a very militant excited. guy, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. And somehow, even though I was a hippie and he was an ex-Marine, we hit it off somehow. <laughs> I think he liked my guitar playing. But in any event, when I was there, I started talking to him about it. And he suggested one of the single ladies in his community. And uh, I'm thinking, yeah, yeah. And he said, well, next next time you come through, we'll have a dinner and you'll get to know her. And sure enough, maybe three months later, I come through and uh, they're hosting it. They had another house. They had the ashram in Denver and they had their own house that they owned uh, in the suburbs. So they invited me to a dinner party at that house. And the only people at the dinner party were Huddy Singh and Carr, me and this young lady. And then about half dozen of the people in the ashram were in the kitchen serving us. I mean, if that wasn't a setup. Meanwhile, I think we kind of fell in love over the over that dinner and so forth. So I thought, oh yeah, yeah. I think I think this is my wife gonna be my wife. And I but I knew I had to call Letty. It was very feudal, kind of a feudal system, you know. We had kings. You mean because he was the higher up in your ashram, and so in he my was ashram, like he had I to give the blessing. I exactly. I was still considered to be part of the DC ashram, even though I'm living in California. But you know, I was on their payroll and so forth and so on. And uh, so I called. Uh, I called Letty, and Letty, Letty was. Uh, really brusque with me and finally it was like I felt like he hung up on me and I'm thinking geez what's going on oh I remember the last thing he said to me well did you talk to Huddy Singh 
And I said, Huddy Singh, I didn't realize I needed to talk to Huddy Singh. I said, he said, sure. He's the head of the ashram. She's in his ashram. You need to talk to Huddy Singh. So I get off the phone from Letty. I pick up the phone. I called Huddy Singh and I told him uh, that I was interested in marrying. I'm, I, I, I'm just, that, that's one of the things I'm uncomfortable about is saying her name. So I'm not going to say her name. Uh, wonderful lady who's still around. Uh, and uh, so Huddy Singh, first thing he asked me is, well, did you talk to her? I said, no, I called Letty. Letty said to call you, get your approval. Do I have your blessing? Said, well, you have my blessing if she's into it, you know? And uh, I said, okay, well, can I talk to her? And he said, well, she's uh, teaching a yoga class right now. Call at exactly 8.30 Mountain Time and I'll put her on. I said, okay. So it was about from 8.15 to 8.30, I got my guitar out. I'm chanting the Guru Ram Das because I'm nervous, you know, uh, and um, I'm reaching for the phone right as the second hand is going to hit 8.30, you know, and the phone literally rings in my hand. I'm not dramatizing this story. The phone literally rings in my hand and I pick it up and I go, hello, or Satnam, and it's Letty. And he goes, Ganesh. He never once called me Guru Ganesh, it was always Ganesh, which I didn't mind. He says, Ganesh, uh, I found a wife for you. I said, Letty, what do you mean? You told me to talk to Huddy Singh. I called Huddy Singh. He, I have this lady in uh, Denver. And he says, I'm, I'm going to read a list of eight single ladies in the community and you can pick one. I said, really? Well, you know, as a man, I was curious. Okay. Who are the eight ladies? Because there was one lady in particular I was hoping was on the list. So he goes through the list and they're all great Shaktis, yada, yada, yada. But I find, at the end, I said, well, what about? And he said, oh, she's taken. She's taken. She's not available. I said, really? I thought she was single. Da, 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 da. She's also a musician. I've always had this thing with the musicians, you know. And... Um, um, so I said, you know, thank you, Letty. But I, you know, I called Huddy Singh. I really like this lady out there. I think I'm going to go ahead and do that. So a few minutes later, I'm getting my courage back up to call, you know, uh, Huddy Singh and talk to the, uh, the, the gal in the ashram. And phone rings again. This time it's Gunga. Now, Gunga. I love Ganga. We all love Ganga. She was like the mother of the community. Getting a call from Ganga was very special. By the way, we're still very close with Ganga. And we talked to her. She lives up in the Seattle area. Oh, wow. And, um, but just, you know, a, a, a wonderful person. Everybody in the community loved her. She said, Gurganesh, I got just the person for you. I said, really? I said, who? She said, Gurdarshankar. And I'm like, Gurdarshankar, I barely knew her. She had just moved into the ashram maybe a month or two prior that I went on my shoe trip from Tucson. I, I do remember she had a beautiful harmony voice. She used to sing with Sinkar when she was in Tucson. Hmm. They were really tight. And, uh, but the thing, I, there were two things I remembered. One is... Uh, Every single morning, we started doing Japshi at 3.45 at Ahimsa Ashram. She would be in the sadhana room at 3.15 doing Japshi from 3.15 to 3.45. And then everybody else would show up for Japshi. And I'm thinking, 
wow, this is one devoted lady, which was a big deal to me at the time. And then I remember um, when it was time for me to go on my sales trip, I didn't have a suitcase. And I just announced at the end of Sadhana one day that, uh, hey, anybody got a suitcase they can spare for a couple of months? And Gurdarshan jumps up. And uh, uh, this is before any of this stuff happened. Runs down into the basement at Ahim's ashram. There was one whole room that was just suitcases, you know. There was another room where 13 men, single men lived, including myself, called the Nanak room. That's a whole other story. And uh, she just gets in there, starts tossing suitcases left and right, finally gets to her suitcase, gives and says, here, use this. Very nice hard shell suitcase with her name tag on it. So the whole trip that I was on, I had her suitcase. So I remembered that and I remembered her devotion and also, hey, men are very visual. I also thought she was cute. I said, that was the trifecta. And I said to Ganga, <laughs> okay, I'll marry her. And I got a call back another hour later. Well, Gurganesha, you're officially engaged. I said, I'm engaged already. I haven't even talked. She said, we talked to her. She's agreed to it. We need you to come back. This was March or something. We need to come back in May. The wedding is scheduled for May 15th. I was kind of in a state of shock. And so I they flew me back one week before the wedding. And I'm like, she met me at the airport and we were like both very tongue-tied. We're getting married in a week and we barely knew each other. Wow. I also want to pause. Did you never call the lady back at Huddy Singh's office? I never. And that is a regret. I feel bad oh. about that. So I they were waiting that. and you just didn't call. I did you talk got to her many years later about it and she took it in good stride. She kind of understood. Did, um, was she waiting there? She was waiting for my call. Yeah. After the class. Yeah. At Huddy Singh with Huddy Singh. Yeah. And so you got intercepted by Larry and, I got and Ganga. And, the, and that's why you never made that call to ever say how interesting. OK, I so you enjoy the story. It's a very colorful story. It is. It's so interesting. But also what it also paints. And I want people to hear this is the dynamic at that time, how early this dynamic is around the head honchos of the ashram. So here, Huddy Singh is the Colorado guy. Right. And and it's Larry and Guru Jyot Singh that are out that's there right. and and even listening back to some other people's stories like Rose and Sat Peter's story, you can hear some of the dynamics that was happening on the East Coast. Now Guru Ganesh is adding to that. But here you are a very important figure, young in that. And I say important figure in that you've proven to be an, um, a, a producer and in, in the a revenue of, generator. Yeah, I was so, generating yes. revenue. And so to hear like, oh, they just flew me back out. See, they are the leaders are saying we you're under our jurisdiction. Don't don't miss the hierarchy here. So even to hear this, the nuance of the story is so fascinating where, um, you know, Huddy Singh saying, well, you did do this, do you do this? Larry's like, well, did you call him? And then suddenly Gunga calls and you're like, whoa, you only get a special call from Gunga. And 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 the epiphany you must have realizing you've had this lady's suitcase the whole time, like kind of, again, the built in kind of like, whoa, that must be a sign and feeling right. like you're being guided yeah. by your teachers. So by honoring the hierarchy, you're actually being fulfilled. And that's built into all this yeah. as early as 1976. I, I wasn't questioning it at the time. I was fully accepting it, you yeah. know? Yeah. I, I mean, important. it was, Living in the community, I was uh, 
singing all the time with people in the community. I was working in the family businesses. You know, I felt all my, everything was being provided. You know, of course I wasn't building up any bank account because it was still, you know, it was still communal. Enough to live by, enough to live by. That, that uh, you know, somehow for me, I, I never was a worrier about money, you know. Thank God I married Madame Undercar because she's very, very organized and disciplined and frugal around money. And uh, she's helped us so that we're in, a, in, in decent shape for retirement, which a lot of people aren't in the community, you know, in good shape. Mm, right. Because they just weren't taught those skills. It was like the family will take care of you and you never taught, were taught to provide for self. Yeah. Yeah. I, and looking back, I think, yeah, we should have had retirement plans for everything we should, you know, but anyway, so where, where, where are so we? So you both got off, you got off the plane and I, and you really painted this naive picture where you're both kind of nervous and you're excited. And also just the, the naivety of like saying, okay, I want a wife now I'm going to break my vows help. And now you summon your leadership to arrange you in a way, right? And so now you two are both like ready to be married. Well, and the interesting thing is we, you know, Gurdash and, and I got along really well. I don't think we were like, you know, super duper romantic. It wasn't like that, but we gave it our best shot. Years later, we both discovered that we, we were kind of sharing. Maybe this might've been after the divorce. And, you know, I, I was visiting her when she was dying of cancer and Akulsa, I was taking care of her. But we kind of like found out that I had wanted to marry some, remember I mentioned, asked Larry about this lady that he said, no, she wasn't available. Well, it turns out she was available and was interested in marrying me, but nobody ever told me that. We And... Gurdarshan had wanted to marry somebody else and was told, no, he wasn't available. And it turns out he may have been interested. Yeah, you know, that, it was kind of how it worked. It was like if you wanted to marry somebody, that was your ego. Yeah. And I'm glad you're pointing this out because this has um, exposed itself through other interviews in that almost like the arranged marriages were were set up purposely to be a little bit off, not exactly what you wanted. Um so that there was kind of a, a forever longing and a loyalty to YB. Yeah. Yeah. As you know, I, I, you know, I, I, it's, it's hard to believe he could have been that tactically manipulative to think to that, but it's possible. Well, you know, the way well, I look at it is for me to, to, to mm -hmm. uh, come to terms with is through it all was thinking, is it possible? And of course my son believes it is. That is intentions right from the beginning, uh, where where uh, kind of sure. it was more related to power and control and money than our spiritual evolution. That was the hardest one for me to let go of. And every now and then, I think there must have been some good intention behind what he was doing here. You know, because that's why you know a lot of people look back and say, "Yeah, yoga. I love yoga. I love pranayama." I love chanting. I, I fell in love with Gurbani Kirtan, which is why I still kind of, you know, people ask me, well, are you a Sikh? I say, first and foremost, I'm a human being. And, uh, but in terms of my spiritual practice, it's more Sikh than anything else. But at this point in time, it's more, uh, it's gotten to be more of the Sikhism practice by Sikhs of Punjabi ancestry.
Sure. Um, I want to just pause and say that it's such duplicity, right? That we start exploring. Um, I think what's revealing itself and it's harder. It's not time for everybody to see that fully is that he absolutely was a manipulator and con artist from the beginning. And, um, and you have to hear more and more of those stories to be like, Oh geez. Oh geez. And so your son has such um, capacity to like cut through and actually see connect dots that nostalgia won't let a lot of us else see and um, but there's layers to that. And it doesn't mean that our personal transformations or those moments that we had that did really um, create inner transformation wasn't real. Right. Even if he exactly, had this manipulation. Exactly. And also, I, I take responsibility. I for, uh, I definitely made the final, even though it was suggested to me, I made the final choice, as did Gurdarshan, as did Madam Undercar, you know, that we. You know, I don't want to just say, oh, we were told to be married and we were just sheep. I There were people who refused to marry who YB told them to marry. And he would usually back off. You know, if somebody was there's a uh, there were people who were told to divorce their spouses when their spouse left 3HO that refused to do it. And they're glad they refused to do it. They're still happily married. And of course there are some who refused to do it, aren't it? You know. Well, it's all the experiences, but that's why your experience matters because it's not about other things. Like personally, what I've learned about cult indoctrination is that even when we think it's our choice, we're already within the remnants of mind control and therefore it's called bounded choice. We're not really choosing. We're choosing within a very bounded system that is already encapsulated our capacity to choose. The choices get very limited. Right. So we, we, we've been a part of, and this isn't unique to 3HO. That's why I can't really tell, I can't tell listeners enough, get cult specific therapy because it really helps us to realize that this is quite a formula. It's a one, two, three formula. It's not as specific and amazing as the ideology that we got. Although of course we think it's an amazing ideology or we wouldn't have followed it, you know, but it's not unique. I guess the, the bounded choice, making choices within limited options, within a system that said you're living up to your highest vows. If you live according to this lifestyle, be a good man, do da, 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 da. And so you're making choices within the realm of the highest realm of what it would be to be in your highest conscious self. Now, is that a true thing? No, just within the context of what you were given. So yes, you made a choice. But was it really your choice in the landscape of all things possible in life? Of course not, because you've now chosen a path that is fulfilling you in these moments. And you've given us a really great picture as to why the music was resonating, the lifestyle, the community, um, the hymns ashram. I think I really want people to hear this was a special place. And the more you hear different people's stories about it when there's so much world chaos and you have a sanctuary that is talking about health consciousness and expanded living consciousness and changing humanity through community. And, you know, it's pulling on humanistic ideals and there's no doubt that when you chant together, you're feeling a communal vibration. Like all these things are, are poking at you. Again, I just want to point out there are choices we make within choices and it isn't a personal responsibility we have to take, but I see that you made a lot of personal responsible choices within bounded choice. 
Yeah, as best I, I as best I could, you know. I was definitely really kind of fully enveloped in the group think. You know? And and in a beautiful way, mind you, meaning leaders that had a level of prominence that were successful in their business acumen are looking at you as being a major contributing force to the success of the future. Who doesn't want to be a contributing force to the success of the future, yeah. much less the contributing force to yeah. the change of consciousness on of humanity? I, I believed in the mission. I, you know, I believed we were going to change the world. You know, that's right. And, Maybe even yeah. save the world. Absolutely. Now I'm focused on saving myself. You know, <laughs> no. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and just your dedication to living the higher ideals is what I'm hearing. So, um, yeah. so you two get married very quickly. End up having a child. Yeah, eleven months later. I mean, we didn't really plan it, but we weren't we weren't uh, using birth control either. So it happened, and. Uh, uh, Wow, uh, things shifted. You know, I, we barely knew each other, and she became completely devoted to raising a Kalsa high. I mean, he was madly in love with his mother. And uh, I almost felt a little, you know, I was on the road all the time selling, and I, I almost felt like I wasn't even part of the, uh, you know, the nuclear family. And the fu funny thing is, when she uh, decided to divorce me. She said, uh, Gurganesh, I want you to know I'm not just divorcing you. I'm divorcing all three of you. And I'm saying all three of us. And I'm thinking she meant a call so high, which she didn't. And I said, which three? She said, Yogi G, Gurjot, and you. Because it was all kind of lumped together. She saw that was the patriarchy at the time. And literally six months later, after she announced that she was divorcing me, and I'd already kind of been guided by Yogi G and Gurjot to come back from California to the DC community, which is when I started working in the toner room. And that's a whole other story. Um, oh, what was I going to say? Having a little neurotransmitter. That's okay. The question that I had is, so you have the baby, things start changing, you're on the road a lot. So she's basically raising your son alone. At what point around 1985, there's a movement to send the kids to India. Your son's among that first group of kids to go to school. Do you want to get us to that story? Yeah. And uh, well, she, she wasn't comfortable with the whole India thing from the very beginning. You know, she was a very hands-on mother. And uh, she did as much due diligence as she could. And her conclusion was this, this is not ready, you know? And then yep. and I look back and I was like, I thought she was off the wall at the time. You know, uh, Yogi G says this, da, 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 da. I bought into the whole dogma, you know? Uh, and um, and, and also kind of was implied to me from various sources that I can't let my wife control me, you know? And, uh, you know, so I kind of, one of the ways that I proved that I was my manhood, you know, which is highly overrated manhood. <laughs> one of the ways I proved my manhood was imposing my will on the situation, which broke the back of the marriage. 
Interesting. So here the movement to go to school in India happens. She's not just on board just because YB says so. She starts doing her own research about the school that the kids are supposedly going to get sent to. She's like, heck no, I don't want my kid going. And then you use your manhood, your masculine will within a patriarchal system to say, this is what's going to happen. Our son is going. Right. And with the help of the other well, of course, with Guru Jodh Singh, YB, right. and the whole system where basically the right. head of the ashrams were the gods of the ashrams. And then if people didn't drop in line, according to that ashram, those leaders would go to YB and then he would right. put a call in. And I didn't really want to divorce. You know, I bought into the whole notion, too, that marriage was forever. So I was in a lot of pain and I, you know, I wanted to do counseling and she had already decided. She's kind of one of these people that never talked about what was bothering her until the teapot just boiled over, you know? Mm. So and, in reality, hold on, let, let's catch up. You're saying a Kalsahai did go to school. And so- We were and, still married. She hadn't announced that she was divorcing me yet. I imposed my will. He went to India. He was at Wendy, uh, uh uh, he was in centenary school in January year. of uh, uh, what was it? 86. She served me divorce papers, which was still a shock to me. And wow. um, so, uh, uh, you know, and I was in a lot of pain. I got very, you know, I, I think I known I was known in the community as a positive guy. But I went into another depression that rivaled the depression I had after my father died, you know, and I mm -hmm. was having trouble getting out of it. And people say, call up Yogi G, call up Yogi G. He knows what's better for you than you know yourself. And I was like, oh, I don't want to bother him. I didn't want to be one of these high maintenance students. I rarely had ever talked to him other than maybe once or twice at a lecture or at a white tantra course briefly, you know, and uh so they convinced me and somebody even gave me gave me a number that would go to one of his personal secretaries or whatever. So finally, I called him and uh, he answered the phone himself. And he said, call Gurdjieff. He knows what's better for you than you know for yourself. He'll wow. he'll take care of everything. So I did. You know, it was a very short conversation. Call Gurdjieff. Because he still considered me part of Gurdjieff's ashram, which I still was really, uh, even though I was, uh, you know, I was kind of a remote part of the of the DC community living in San Jose or then Palo Alto with Gurdjieff. And uh, I called Gurdjieff, and he said, uh, "Come back." I said, "Well, I want to try to work it out." And he said, "No, if you work it out, she's just going to do it to you again." She uh, she had also. Uh, got, had developed an emotional attachment to another man, understandably, yada, yada, yada. That was that was probably the most devastating part of the thing to me. And uh, because you were well, on the road so much, you mean? Yeah, I was on the road. So, and so the so the uh, the party line was, yeah, yeah, no, get rid of her. She's, you know, at that point, she's already disobeyed, uh, you know, Yogi G, da, 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 da. Reason I'm telling you this is six months later, after I was engaged to be married to Madhamandakar, and we even had a date set, Gurdarshankar reached back out to me, said she she realized she was making a mistake and wanted to try to save the marriage, save our nuclear family. And at the time, I, I wanted to, even though I love Madhamandakar, and, and I wanted to honor my word to her too, I didn't want to lose my marriage. So I actually talked to Madhamandakar 
And she said, we'll talk to Yogi G. And uh, she said, she'll abide by whatever he says. And he, so what he said is, well, if she'll do the following, then you guys can stay married. Part of it was he wanted her to come to New Mexico and work on his staff. And so then, one of his stipulations was that Guru Darshan, you could stay married if Guru Darshan was willing to come and work on his staff. Yeah. Wow. And at that time, you didn't have a context for what that meant, but it would be no. only in 2020 that you really had the revelation of what that meant. Well, maybe a little earlier and we can get to that if we, okay. if we have time. But uh, it was 2020 that confirmed my my uh, concerns. Wow. So he gives a list of things that she has to do in order for you guys to be able to stay married. Right. And she says, no, she's not willing to do that. She was willing to do everything, but she wasn't willing to go be on his staff and live with him. Wow. And it was years later, I realized, wow. You know, Gerdarshan was <laughs> pretty amazing. <laughs> she had her marbles in that brain working. Yeah, wow. she, she declined and that was the end of the marriage. And then... Wow. Uh, I, you know, then a few months later, Madhamandar and I uh, proceeded to get married. And, and did Guru Jyot Singh marry you? Uh, yeah. Guru Jyot yeah. Singh married us in Great Falls in the backyard of his house in Great yeah. Falls. Yeah. And I wanted to just pause on that real quick because the you're, you're calling things like the party line. And I just want listeners to hear what that means. It means that when you're in this circle that, that Guru Ganesha Singh was in, so he's he's a productive member even though he's living all the way over in California, he's still in the territory of being considered under the jurisdiction of right. the leadership of the Virginia DC ashram. Yeah. So this is important to hear in terms of how the um, militaristic hierarchical chain of command went down because when you were a part of say something as close to Guru Jyot Singh's command and what we just heard you say, Guru Ganesha is you spoke with YB and YB does what turns around and edifies one of his main man. Right, so now right. you are now re-solidified in that hierarchy of why Guru Jyot Singh is an important person to listen to when he has a radar for what's good for you. And so within this window where he's, you're still married and you have a chance to reconcile with the mother of your own child, you're already committed to the next good devoted woman who's really committed to the path, yada, 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 not doing the not good woman things, meaning not listening to their husband, right. not listening to YB. And within the context of Guru Ganesha's devotion, you don't always see those little things. That's why it would be years later that he looks back and be like, dang, Gurdarshan really had her radar on early. But when you're in it, Again, you're a devoted contributor right. to successful businesses that are contributing to the long-term future of humanity, the consciousness we're building, and the family itself that's being painted as the vision of why you should be sacrificing time from your family, why you should be sacrificing being the father, because you're building up a, hum a business that's going to contribute to all of humanity and our own family, quote, um, by one of the command commanding men, second in command to YB. I, this is I, really we big. Thought, we thought Gurjot Singh was being groomed to be the next series Singh Sahib. We really did. He was always kind of a when they were anywhere close, he was always at his on his right side there, kind of like the right hand guy and yeah, raising Good. large amounts of money. 
large, large amounts of money um, and a really important contributor to a lot of different business models that got added to the system and structures of this organization. Uh, and so Adam Undercar was on his Gurjot staff for years and years. Interesting. And so before you got actually engaged, she was on his staff. And she was she still on his staff. Interesting. And she was very loyal. And in a way, uh, you know, she, she said Gurjot had talked to her about this even before they encouraged me to come back. And she was enthused. We knew each other. We were very, very good. You know, we we had a pl beautiful platonic relationship in the early years. You know, sure. and so uh, there was uh, there was always like a strong connection there, almost like if you believe in past lifetimes. I almost felt I just the minute I met Madame Undercar, I felt like I knew her like a sister. You know, mm, mm. so interesting. And and um, when you two got married. Uh, she had a she had a daughter and you had a son already. Yeah, I was very fortunate to inherit a, a magnificent daughter, Sarah Swadikar, you know, who lives in uh, Espanol and works full time uh, uh, with the uh, lawyers that are, 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 are uh, uh, trying to they're working uh, to help with climate change. And, you know, she's an activist and she's, you know, I learn a lot from Sarah Swadikar. So give us the context. Saraswati was how old in India at the time that you Saraswati got married? Saraswati is about uh, a year and a half older than Akulsa High. They're both in India when the marriage was announced. And in retrospect, they were both upset with us that they didn't get to come to the wedding. And, it, you know, I think it, we may have brought it up. And they said, no, no, they should stay in India, this and that. And can you imagine that? You uh, the, the plus was they learned that they were now siblings, right? Because they were both only ch only children. And Akulsa, I remember Saraswati tells the story that he went to visit her in the, in the ladies' quarters and brought her a box of chocolates or something. And they started to you know, really look out for each other while they were in India, which is really beautiful. But they, they told us later on, they were both kind of upset that we went ahead and got married without them and not even talking to them. And they were only, of course, Sarah Swati was maybe 10. Because yeah. I was like eight and a half at this time. So he obviously got word that you're divorcing his mom and that you're marrying somebody else all within that same year at eight years old. Yeah. Yeah. While living in India. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, you know, very, very, it was very tough on him. And that was at the that was at the command of Guru Jodh Singh saying this is just this is what's going to happen. Uh, yeah, I mean, I I agreed to it. Actually, I had cold feet a few times, and he he sent uh, Al, who I've always had a great relationship with, you know, who's I guess his partner in terms of uh, the Thailand uh, adventures and so forth. But I was in L.A. on shoe business and. Al flew to L.A. and met me and we were out outside, I remember, uh, near the airport, standing in the hot tub. And he was kind of, you know, he's very persuasive guy. And by the end of my uh, half hour of talking to Al in the uh, uh, in, in the jacuzzi, I had agreed to definitely come back to D.C. I kept going back. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I just want people to hear that, you know, what made Guru Jodh Singh an excellent businessman is his power of persuasion, right? It, it, even if he was persuading oh, you into something. Guru Jodh made stuff happen. <laughs> he just you know? got things done. and He got um, things done. 
I, but, I think that's why YB liked him so much. He got things done. Yeah. So keep it going because there's a lot more stories to tell about your ashram and things that went down with Guru Joe. To, well, when and- I came back, the job that they were telling me that I had was in Alexandra in in a uh, in a toner room, and uh, you know I got a little bit of training, but before you know it, they put me in charge uh, of uh, two full shifts. It was like all these inner city women on the line, uh, I mean, who were, uh, uh, you know, making the calls, they were doing the outgoing calls. And then there were three or four of us who were closers. And I was the head of the closers and I ran the toner room. And when they got somebody on the line that was cooperative, they'd say, got one. And I had a name, it was Rich Evans. I had a pseudonym. They go, Rich, got one, Rich. And I go grab it and I go into my shtick and I, I was very good at it. And there was a little bit of a thrill to it. And it took me a while before I realized that we were, uh, 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 which, what should I say? We were uh, stealing from people. That it was a totally corrupt business. And that we were uh, implying that we were like their regular supplier and they, we, we were just calling them to just get authorization to, for their next shipment of toner, which probably cost them $20, $30, which we were selling for, you know, 299 bucks for a small carton or 399 We got a lot of returns. They had a whole system. They brought in this guy who was an expert, not going to mention his name. He was an expert scam artist who had set this kind of business up and, and the uh, we were doing it at a very high level generating. I, I, I think we, uh, what, the, what the LA toner room was doing paled in comparison to what we were doing in DC. And which one started first? You know, I'm not a hundred percent sure, but. And who started I, the one on the East coast? Well, Gurjo. Was it Gurjo Singh? Okay, uh, because yeah. we had heard about Hari G one and Cure Paul on the on the California one. I'm not sure which one started first. I That's just interesting. The, I suspect it was the L.A. one. And then you guys picked up that same operation, but it was operating at a much higher level, is what I hear you saying. Yeah, Gurjo brought in a pro, pro a pro scammer. Yeah, pro. If yeah, you're gonna pro. do it well, do it right. Yeah. If you're and gonna this do guy it, do it. Knew well. his stuff. He knew exactly nuts to bolts how to do it. And whenever the attorney general would get a wind of it, you know, boom, we'd shut down and move the location. So I kind of felt stuck in there for a while because, you know, I didn't really have any money and I was getting a decent paycheck and, you know. And And you you got recruited from your California selling Shakti shoes moves, right? And and this is like, was that had integrity? We were selling footwear, delivering footwear and, that that business shut down because the souls, the Craton souls, one summer they were all splitting, and we lost uh, over a million dollars in footwear. Got returned and it basically bankrupted us. Shut us. I down. see. So now you get put into another position. So you are in a position where you need this check, and you get put into that position. How did you feel about not using your real name and just some of the, the initial things that you found as soon as well, you got you know, there? At the time, I was fed the party line that there's no karma on the phone, and this and that. And plus, we were having a lot of fun there, and. It was for the mission. The ends justified the means. Hey, I okay. twisted my 
the integrity, the integrity part of myself into a pretzel to try to justify getting up. And after a while, I just, every night when I got home, I felt like I needed to take a shower. And eventually I announced that I was resigning. And, um, uh, from the family businesses. And of course, then there was a big intervention that was set up. And uh, I ended up in a room and on Spring Street where we had Shakti Shoe headquarters and Sterling Business Service headquarters. In the conference room, there must have been 10 people there and me. I got ushered into the room and I got blindsided because Gurganesh was in Shakti Pod. He's because you were trying to do your own thing. I wanted to leave. Yeah. I want, you know, uh, actually, I'm, it's all coming back to me now. We got shut down by the attorney general and we started another business called Sterling Business Services, which seemed to be on the up and up. And I was the best salesman for that. Then I started to discover there was some unethical stuff happening with that and with Kelsa Financial Services. And I just got to the point where I said, you know what? That's it. And, uh, I actually got the idea to start a sales training business. Sat Wansing was my partner. He went into the business with me. We both second mortgaged our house to buy the franchise. And about uh, eight Who'd months Who'd you buy later, it from? Uh, Dave Sandler. Got I, it. Got yeah. it. You bought I mean, the that, Sandler Institute. Got it. Okay. Yeah, this was a franchise business. There were over 200 franchises in uh, North America. Not at that time, but there are now. And but after about 18 months, I became, I went for about six, seven years being like one of the top two or three or number one franchises in the entire network. So that, that uh, en enabled me to, uh, but that, that's, I left the kind of like, it started a little bit under the, under the umbrella of the community. And that I just couldn't handle not making the decisions. I was the main force in the business. Satwan eventually realized that he wasn't cut out to be in that business. And he resigned when also when I uh I I bought him out and I left the family businesses. That was 1989. That was the best financial decision I ever made was leaving the family businesses. So when you got blindsided in that room, you you weren't leaving the Dharma, you were just leaving the family businesses and saying, I need to, you were resigning after I that attorney general thing. Then. I said, I'm not in Shakti Pod. I still love the path. I love Kundalini Yoga. I love chanting with everybody. But I I, I want to make, I want, I, I, I'm a very entrepreneurial person. And I had reached a level of frustration because I didn't, wasn't comfortable with many of the decisions being made by the hierarchy. Including whoever was in charge of those businesses, Gurjot Singh and, uh, and YB or other people? It was mostly Gurjot Singh that uh, I was uncomfortable with. You know, he and I have always had a fairly good personal relationship. I didn't, I got to the point where I didn't like working for him anymore. Sure. And, and his business approach. That you can't argue with. You know, once he had an opinion, it stayed that way. Sure. So you had pointed it out that you wanted to be able to be in the decision making of your own company, these types of things. So when you got blindsided, you had to really hold your own to really prove I'm not leaving the path. I'm not leaving you all. I'm just needing to make other choices and be financially autonomous. Yes. And Nobody so you were able to hold me. your Nobody believed me. They thought this was the beginning of my downfall. 
you know. Got it. And so he but put other 10 know, people. And I was employing people in the community. Of course you are. Um, but it wasn't the community's business. But, I, you know, I, 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 I was loyal to the community. So, uh, you know. The okay, first and, people I would look at when I needed somebody was people in the community. Yes. And also just to kind of give that lens, you're trying to branch out and just create a financial choice for yourself. That's not under the umbrella of Guru Jot's leadership and his business acumen. And instead of trying to say, Hey, I don't like the way you do that. You're just trying to say, Hey, I'm just going to go over here and do this. Yeah. And I, you're I trying wasn't to insulting anybody or anything. Sure. I just said, I, I really want to run my own business period. But within the I was landscape, like 39 years old at the time, you know, I was a grown man. You're a grown man. And under the uh, the landscape of having one of these businesses that you were running be shut down by the attorney general, you're starting to notice business practices that some part of you probably is in alignment with. And instead of yeah. trying to, quote, tell on the leadership, you're just trying to how do I extract myself, stay in my own integrity and keep it moving, but but you don't always have that full thought process. You're just like, what do I got to do next? So I, I, it's interesting to hear this kind of framework of saying you were in Shaktipad because essentially anytime somebody did something that a leader didn't want them to do, the excuse was you're in Shaktipad. Yeah, yeah, and I, and I, I just remember, I you know, I look back at that that uh, that was a very seminal moment in my life. And I look back and I feel good about myself for taking that stand. And I did start enjoying working much more afterwards, being able to be, because I'm a creative person and I like to apply the creativity. Business can be very creative endeavor. You know, it can be Absolutely. very artistic in a way, you know? Absolutely. And, and uh, it, the business evolved and started to do really well. And all of a sudden I'm making a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. And I'm using it for the community. Yeah, employing people, but also pouring it back into things. Ashram, I was paying, you know, on a monthly basis, I was paying ashram, double ashram dues. I was very into the community. And, you know, so uh, the success that came to me from this, and I was providing free sales training service. One point, Yogi Ji called me up and said, you know, I want you to leave this sales training business and worked for CBB, maybe be the sales manager. And he was really stroking me. And I was, you know, but I didn't say yes. I said, sir, I need to meditate on this. I need to think about it. This business that I have is doing well. And I believe it's serving the Dharma and serving the community. A few days later, I called back. I said, no, but I will provide sales training if you're so inclined. And I started uh, doing some training classes for you know, Saad Hanuman was in it, Siri Bahadur, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, the folks who were working for CBB was the, uh, you know, the natural food broker. That's, I want to, I want to, we're going to have to put a flag in that because I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. Um, but there's a couple of things happening in a simultaneous timeline. So I want to get your perspective on this. While this is happening, when you do the Sandler training, I don't know where in the timeline the things happen in your ashram where there's the DEA rating, um, and I'm like, kind of curious in the timeline. Wasn't that 92 or something? So that's a little later. You started your institute, your training. I'm pretty sure it was a little bit later. I was already working for myself. I okay. was at Kurt Jotes' house when the DEA arrived. So 
Okay, I, so pause. I want to get to that story, but I'm just trying to get the timeline. So this is a little later. You are quite successful in your company, and you talk about how YB calls you saying he wants you to quit the thing you're doing but work for CBB. Had you ever seen those contracts of the natural food brokers? Because in Sat Hanuman's no. story, he talks about how in the contracts of every one of those salespeople, it was written that 30% went to YB before they even got their checks. Uh, I never saw that. You know, I, I think that there were periods of time, you know, I developed friendships with all those folks. And there were periods of time where every they call me up and just, you know, kind of to vent. I think Saad Hahnemann in particular, there were a few times he called me up and was just uncomfortable with the whole situation. I think I probably encouraged him to keep up, you know. <laughs> I wasn't really disloyal, still wasn't being disloyal, but I was glad I had started my own business. And, uh, you know, I just, you know, I, I kind of lucked into the sales training business I, and uh, I didn't realize I would be so good on a platform as a motivational speaker. And, but I was teaching people an actual methodology that they, you know, and people would start using, get inspired, start using it and have more success. Still to this day, I have, I have, have had an open invitation to any second gen person, third gen person that's, uh, you know, wants a little guidance in the sales marketing department to just call me. And I've always, you know, this has been my way to give back. Yeah, some and it makes sense to me. Called, some of the kids that have called me are kind of still connected to the Dharma and some aren't, but it didn't matter to me. Yeah, you've always been so open and as a channel that way. But I do find that interesting that you were able to deflect YB's um, command of what to do by saying, hmm, uh, no, but I will provide the service, right? Which then only absolutely enhanced their capacity to become better salespeople for his network, where he was obviously reaping a lot of profits. Um, so thank you for that clarity. And it is interesting to hear how your company, which is while it's not a family business, was supporting, even if it was behind the scenes, the growth of basically the incredible salespeople we had in our community that built the health food movement, you know, that they, that, oh, yeah. that. Oh yeah. And, and believe me, uh, everybody in the community, uh, you know, the, uh, inner circle, they all knew who was making money and who had money. And all of a sudden I start. I get the yearly call to donate to the, the birthday parties. And I, I must've done that 15 years in a row, wrote a four figure check and sent it. And, you know, so I was, contributing but you know the fact that uh, when i left the business all of a sudden within two or three years i was experiencing a lot of success uh that was very empowering to me mm -hmm. and it was confirmation that i had made the right decision yeah and and, and you know and uh i don't i don't think it was a uh, uh you know it uh, it it just and um uh I'm having another little. It's okay. I think it was brilliant. And what I want to say is now jumping you to. So when the DA raids, you're saying you were at Guru Jot's house with him. Yeah, I remember we were all sitting in the living room, and uh, I, I can't remember a lot of details, but it was like, what's this? Why is the DEA here with guns drawn? You know. One of the things that we've heard is that there was the DE raid, and it was during Sadna. Maybe that's probably why I was there. I was still like a super sadhana devotee. <laughs> I was going to say, you were a devoted sadhana person. So this is where, where that memory is. For and like I a, only... 25 years, I was like, you know, 
one of the rocks sodna wise well and not only that but i when i lived there way later in like 2000 and are in like um oh god i don't know when it was 1998 um you were still one of the solid, you were the regular Sadna person. And I loved coming to Sadna because you would always uh, sing live. Anyway, so going back to that DA raid, your ashram had this raid at the time. And if you could just give us any idea of what you do remember, because obviously we had heard that, and it's been exposed, that your community was told one story when really there was another story going on. Yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea that there was this whole drug deal thing happening and uh um until that day then you know then it started to you know i, I don't think gerjot immediately started saying but it started to leak out what was going on he was being accused of this and it was implied that it was bullshit and uh, a bunch of us second mortgaged our houses so uh for bail so you were and one of those although, people although no no because my my wife is very tough financially she, there was no way she was going to She agree. said, no, we're not doing that. No. I'm very <laughs> blessed to have a real. Oh, Madam Under, Madam Undercar. We're just going to kind of give praises right now. Yeah. She says, uh, no, we're not doing <laughs> that. So, so of all the people in the community that get convinced to, to take out a mortgage, your, your family's not one of them. We didn't do it, but a lot of people did. And we understood. I think I was one that wanted us to do it. But, uh, you know, uh, M.M. and I had a really good relationship. I mainly focused on making the money and she focused on managing it, managing the house. And, and she's just great at what she does. You know, I'm appreciating her more and more the longer we've been together. You know, it's a beautiful yeah. thing. Kudos, kudos. So she said no. And was there what else do you remember from that time that you want to that you want to bring out? Well, it was a very confusing time, but. I, I remember just being grateful that I wasn't in the belly of it, you know, that I had my own business and uh, that, that kind of gave me a little bit of distance because, you know, you know, when you, when you're that age, you're spending, uh, you know, 80% of your conscious hours focused on your business. So I was hyper and, and plus uh, the business was exploding. I was delivering, uh, for about seven, eight years, from about 93 to 98, uh, 99, I was delivering uh, about 100 to 125 on-site days of training, mostly in Silicon Valley for tech companies, mm. you know, full days or two-day boot camps of training in the Sandler sales methodology. So I, uh, oh, you want to hear a funny story? So uh, there were quarterly uh uh, meetings of all the franchisees, you know, and uh, uh, so apparently Steve Joseph decided he was interested in buying a Sandler franchise, but he didn't know that I was part of the organization. Tell us who Steve Joseph is. Uh, he was when he was in 3HO, he was Gurushabit, you know, the, you're the original uh, one that was singing. Ashram, the first ashram I ever visited. Wonderful musician. We had played some music together. And uh, so, and and uh, Dave Sandler would entertain the franchise prospects over lunch at these quarterly meetings. And uh, he's sitting with Steve Josephs around the table and a few other of the uh, senior managers for Sandler. And they see me walk into the room 
And Dave Sandler was very proud of me that somebody with a turban and a beard could be like one of his top guys, you know, because some of the guys had a bet going that somebody looked like me would never make a sale, let alone. And they're like, what the hell are you doing out there? You know? And so Dave Sandler, Ganesh, Ganesh, come on over here. I want you to meet somebody. And, and Steve looks up at me and here's, here's his past showing up, right? Turban, beard. And he gave me the funniest look like he had swallowed a canary when he saw me. But uh, 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 I actually ended up, uh, you know, uh, he called me a few times afterwards. And uh, I can't remember. I think I discouraged him from joining Sandler. I thought it was going to be super awkward, you know. That's Sorry, funny. Steve. Steve, um, I have a question. When he left the Dharma, do you remember talking to him? Had you not seen no. him before? I, I was already, uh, you know, totally, uh, you know, I never lived in the Montague Ashram. I went to that one weekend retreat. So he and I weren't that, weren't very close, you know. Okay. And the Cults of String Band went on tour. I got sent to Atlanta to run the ashram there while Livtar was gone. Got it. Got it. And then when Larry and Gunga left, was that something that ever questioned? Like, Well, when Le when Letty left, um, uh, I was selected to be on a Punj Piari that was supposed to go and try to talk him out of it. I think Yogi wanted us. So I'm one of the five. And I remember we were already in Herndon and we went to visit Letty. Uh, he was just laying on his bed upstairs in his house, and five of us kind of were surrounded the bed. And I remember thinking, wow, he's a totally different person. He had already checked out. You know, he was still there, but he was leaving. And there was nothing we could say. And he didn't try to, you know, he didn't tell us about what he knew. You know, I guess he was kind of honoring, you know, I, I think a lot of people that left, some of them tried to alert us to what was going on, but some of them just said, what's the point? They're not going to yeah. believe it anyways, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, I also uh, wanted to, um, yeah, sorry, keep going. No, but I, I, you know, we were told, yeah, Letty's in Shaktipad. So that's the language you keep Piari, hearing. Talk them out of it, but and so it's so interesting the punch Piari, how they use these Sikh terminology to actually be doing cult interventions, right? They're actually doing interventions to yeah. prevent something, somebody from having critical thought. And there's nothing more powerful around influence than social influence. So when you have people that you love and care for, it's not just the leader. And it reminds me of of sales tactics, right? Where when you want somebody to do what you do, want them to move in a direction, you can have a top higher leader who is more respectful tell that person what they should do yeah. and yeah. it's a sales training technique that's often used to kind of move motivate people in a direction you need them to go without directly telling them yeah there was definitely some group dynamics and you know <laughs> if you you know you if you watch the godfather movies <laughs> you start to realize one time george calls Originally, Guru Sher Singh said to me, uh, he left in the late 80s and he said, you know, you're part of a, a mafia organization, a spiritual mafia or even even uh, YB joked about it one time, called us yep. the spiritual mafia. But it was kind of like that. God forbid you said you started to question YB. That would get to him real fast. Absolutely. The fear mongering and the tactic of people needing to tell on each other for the greater good was so built in so early 
and you felt that in your capacity to make an independent yeah, choice. And I had some glimpses into what was going on. For example, one time at winter solstice, can't remember what year it was in the eighties. One time I was, uh, 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 drafted by uh, Gur Jod Singh and Gur Amrit Singh to do uh, to guard the house that uh, the you know cabin that Cart to Pork Kate felt is that her name Kate yeah Kate staying felt. in and I'm like well why why does she need to be guarded she's a grown woman she was 18 or 19 you said oh she's freaking out and she might harm herself or she may leave and da 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 da. So here I am on sleeping on the front porch of the cabin that she was staying in, supposedly report to report all at the time. I didn't even know about the lawsuit that had happened in the 80s. I mean, Ted, Ted Steiner or Ted had written letters to all the ashram directors, but I wasn't an ashram director. So I never got that letter. But I later on, when I found out about the lawsuit, I was like, huh. Maybe this is why I was guarding her, you know? Yeah, yeah. But it, it was, it, even at the time, it felt uncomfortable. I felt, you know. Yeah. Um, I wanted to go back and also ask two things that was from the earlier story before we continue. Uh, how'd you get your name? I got my name. It was like 1974. Yogi G was in, in DC uh, for to, to teach tantric or something and uh, everybody else had names i had already been in the ashram two three years and uh, i said i want to get a name too so i uh, they uh, made an appointment for me i went upstairs to the third floor he was staying in letty's room you know that was the suite upstairs where larry and gunga lived and then of course when yogi g came to town he would take it over and they would move down you know into uh, to the second floor and I showed up and he looked at me and I sat down and he said, he gave me a napkin. It was a napkin. He said, write down your name on the napkin. And my name was Michael Gonick, G-O-N-I-C-K, Ganesh, Gonick. You know, so Peter was Peter, right? And he ended up with Sap Peter. So he looked at it and he looked at me and he turns it over and he wrote Guru Ganesha. Kind of, you know, it, it had a little bit of my last name, and and I'm, I looked at it. I didn't know what again, and I said, "Sir, what, what does this mean?" And he goes, "Narinjan." He called, you know, Narinjan, the older Narinjan, yeah, the not secretary. The he called her in and he said, "Explain to Guru Ganesha what his name means." And she said, "Well, it's the elephant-headed son of Lord Shiva in Hindu mythology, the remover of obstacles." And I said, "Oh, remover of obstacles, okay." And also some in some annals, they call Ganesh the god of success. I actually like the name. I'm not that infatuated with the guru part of it anymore. Mm. I mainly go by Ganesh, but some people call me Guru Ganesh. It's okay. I don't mind it. Sure. Thank you for sharing your process um, and that story. Um, but and I legalized it. I legalized it very soon thereafter. And I've been, some people say, well, why don't you, you know, change your name? Because there have been a bunch of Gen 1 people who've been doing it or trying to do it. I know one in particular now that's running into all sorts of obstacles. And I'm like, well, first off, in the business universe, everybody knows me as Ganesh, as Gurganesh. And, you know, the, the, the turban and the beard is like part of my persona out there. And uh, uh, somebody, people always ask me, can you do sales training looking like that? I said, well, here, here's it. If I do a good job, nobody ever forgets me. Of course, if I do a lousy job, <laughs> nobody ever forgets me. 
But no, I've, I've made it my own. I'm not going to spend a fortune and hours and hours legally changing my name, although every now and then I get a little twinge over it, you know. Sure. And we all have a personal process to this. I, I think that can't encourage everyone enough to just get cult support therapy here because there's layers and layers to identity and yeah. persona and what they call the cult personality that we've had to take on in order to survive. And so these parts of our personality are very much embedded into our sense of identity and achievement and involvement. And these are not easy untangles. And there's not one way to do it. So I just, I can't encourage yeah, people to I mean, follow their own way uh, as yeah, long as they need it. They're, uh, this, this stuff, I mean, I, I, for example, I wore head coverings. I don't wear a turban every single day. And generally, if I'm doing a concert, I'll wear like a, color, a house turban. I'm not into the whole white thing anymore. I don't want to be identified with that, but still... I, I, you know, after 50 years of having it, your head covered, it just doesn't quite feel right. You know, and I uh, want people to have grace and patience for anyone else's process, because there's not one way that this looks and there's not one way that we arrive back to ourselves, especially when you've lived as long as you've lived to become who you are today. I joke that I bought some, uh, you know how they call be there's beer and there's near beer. Well, I have a bunch of near turbans. <laughs> that are, look like kind of like this, but you just pull them over your. Oh, thank you for the levity. I have near turbans. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's so funny is when I started teaching later, I would I thought it was so funny because, in our in our upbringing, wearing a turban and having your turban look a certain way, it was so much a part of the hierarchical oh, yeah. dogma, right? And so later on, and to watch these people kind of put a slide turban on to be able to practice a Kundalini yoga class just made me laugh because it reminded me yeah. of all the unacceptability of bad turbans in our community. Yeah, and a lot of genuine people, I think, that are acknowledgers are also, you know, not maybe not necessarily ready to take the turban off, although a lot of them have, but they're kind of carving out their own identity. That's right. You know? That's right. And we got to give all the grace and space for somebody Thank to have you. a process to that. I think that's that. a very loving, compassionate way to approach the situation. I, I've definitely gotten some hate mail from some old friends, you know, and they and they they seem that the the bullet points that are used uh, uh, I'm I'm I fall into the category of angry, negative and an angry negative slander. You're talking but, about old friends that are still in the Dharma writing to you uh, because yeah, they're making yeah. choices. Some old friends that are still in the Dharma. Yeah, and we could guess who some of those folks are, right? Some of the staunch. Yeah, I think you can guess supporters and also probably historical music friends and leadership friends. Yeah, you know, and I, I developed in the beginning, I was kind of really angry at them. I've developed a little bit of compassion because, you know, after as many years that they've been devoted to, I think some people were more personally devoted to Yogi G than others. Sure. You know, I think those of us in DC were more kind of attached to Gurjot and Letty than we were to, to YB, you know. But uh, some of the folks that were really, you know, came in under, under, un, you know, with his arm around them, uh, they, it's hard for them. They, they're not even ready to listen to the stories yet. Not even an ounce inkling of them. They're you still know? calling it uh, accusations or something. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, and here's another interesting insight. There were some people early on in 2020, I know for a while I was almost 
campaigning to let people know, like, you know, I don't want to call what you're doing campaigning, but it is getting the message out to, hey, let's take a closer look at our history. You can learn a lot from history. But, um, uh, oh, geez, I think we've, I need to, I need a, it's okay. It's uh, okay. Fusion of something because I'm having, I'm starting to have neurotransmitter blips, you know, it's just okay. You're, you're, unco- you're, you're going back a long time. And so it's not always so easy just to know, to tell the timeline of things because there's certain things kind of that have happened sooner. that are a little bit fresher. So, um, again, I give you so much grace here. Thank you for covering what you're covering. Um, I do have a question. We want to go back to a call. Sahai. he was in, um, India when you got remarried, um, but he was he didn't go longer that one than that one year, right? Because uh, once we were officially divorced, uh, you know, I couldn't do anything. So meaning, and then I want people if to hear this: if, if the she had jurisdiction, joint custody, joint custody, you can't send the kid to school. It has to be a consensus decision to send the child outside the country to go to school. Yeah. So the, essentially because she decided to get a divorce now she had her right on record that she could actually yeah. have a say where within a patriarchal system where the wife doesn't matter and she's being taught to be a good devoted wife and a good devoted wife means listen shut up and do what you say and Gerdarshan had more critical thought and um so she proceeded with that divorce which then meant a call to high is not going back to india you don't get a pull right. of the male strength and then she won uh a custody initially and for two or three and she got remarried to uh, somebody in the mainstream community guy nice guy later became friends he had a house in richmond uh, north of berkeley oakland which is in a tough area kind of a gang area a couple of years later i get a call on uh, uh morning of my 45th birthday from gurdarshan saying that i i should get on the next plane to california and i said why he said uh Akal Sahai is in the emergency room. He got uh, he got beat up. He had a fractured skull, 155 stitches, the base of his skull with the butt end of a shotgun. He was wearing gang colors, apparently, and whatever it was, you'd have to get the full story from him. But it was a tough area, and, uh, you know, he almost got killed. And I came out there. I went to see him. He's all bandaged up, and and I, I, uh, I remember Gerdarshan kind of let me have some time with him alone. I went out to talk to her and I looked at her and I said, Gerdarshan, I'm, I, I, I'm taking him back with me to Virginia unless you strenuously object. And she looked at me and said, you know what? Okay. Because she realized that the neighborhood they were in was just not conducive. He came and lived, uh, lived in Herndon probably from age 11 to 11 to age 14, I became his baseball coach. And and so most of the kids, huh? I want to just clarify, most of the kids of the ashram though, are in India while he's living with you in Herndon. Is that right? He's living with us in Herndon. Yeah. With and there's wife. not a lot of his age kids because they're about 14, 11 to 14. Uh, all the yeah. kids in our community are all in India. Yeah. So he channeled his energy into baseball and, okay. and I, I had been a, high school varsity baseball player when I was growing up. And he actually was a very talented baseball player. And I ended up coaching three of his little league teams from his from from 10th grade on and two of his Babe Ruth baseball teams. And uh, that was and, a great thing for us. 
Yeah, for your bonding, I can only imagine. And then how yeah. about, um, was he forced to, to live the Sikh lifestyle because he was living with you or he just lived his own way? Yeah, he was still, yeah. He was wearing a, you know, a turban, you know, kind of a, the kind of turbans the kid wore with a Rishi knot. Made it a little hard to put his helmet on over it, but he had to wear his helmet on. He needed a bigger helmet. Then, you know, he'd uh, Velcro around the chin strap and so forth. And he went to public school? Uh, he uh, went... I can't remember. Maybe he went to Crestview for a while, but then he ended up going to, yeah, he went to public school for a while. And then I can't quite remember, but Yogi G said he should go to, if he wasn't going to go to India, he should go to NMMI. So he ended up, uh, maybe it was a year and a half, two years going to New Mexico, New Mexico Military Institute, where he played varsity baseball there as a sophomore and uh, learned how to make his bed. That was a plus because when he got back after that, he was he had he had learned how to keep his room clean. Got uh, it, got it. So he was basically still in the community, even though he had lived with his yeah. mom early on. He had come back with you. YB still had influence over telling you how to raise him in the sense like he should go to Clearly, the school. Right, we sent him to NMMI. Yeah, I can barely even remember the conversation that sparked that, but mm -hmm. yeah. So it sounded like throughout his tight uh, life, you, both you and his mom were there. Um, and he had exposure to both. Right. Well, Gurdashan was still living in California. And, you know, he would go there for the summer or for vacations. But for it probably was three, four, five years, he lived with Madam Undercar and I in Virginia. And meanwhile, Saraswati is still going to school in India that whole time. Saraswati is still going to school in India. Yeah. Okay. I was just trying to get the parallel timelines. Um. Okay, awesome. And by the way, she has a different view of, uh, she had good experiences as some of the kids did. And she later on was like assistant principal at MPA for, uh, you know, many of the last eight, 10 years and was really working hard to implement improvements, you know? Interesting. Well, I hope she comes and tells her story because that'll be interesting. Um, okay, so where are we? So now you have um, built up your company. Maybe we're in the 90s now, now right? we're in the 90s, yeah. Sales training business oh, is going great. You, guns. you were talking about um, being the security in front of uh, Kate Feltz, Carter Perks. At one of yeah, that happened says. in the 80s. Oh, okay, but it okay. was in the 90s and then early 2000, 2001, 2002, where I started to get, uh, you know, some insights that maybe things weren't what they seemed, you know, starting with the, the business corruption, but then also starting to hear... I think when the internet started to arrive, you know, I remember starting to, I, I, somebody told me my, about uh, the, the lawsuit the in lawsuit. the 80s. I went in, I read all of that. You know, everybody was saying, oh, Prempka's not to be believed, you know, yada, yada, yada. So, but I remember reading it and, and part of me was thinking, you know, this may very well be true. You know, even though, that wasn't the party line. And uh, then late 90s, I started just starting to feel this great emptiness about music, about having left my music career behind. And it wasn't just about chanting. I had been a serious guitarist and I kind of left that behind for a lot of years. And that's when uh, it was actually a, 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 somebody in our community uh, who was a chiropractor who did some testing, he said, you have this hole in your heart 
because uh, you you didn't you haven't resolved your musicality, your musical career. You have more to do in the in the music arena, and that resonated for me. I'm like, yeah, I need to do something more than than just living room chanting, and that's where I got the idea to, you know, there's a whole story around the start of Spirit Voyage. Mm. Uh, uh, but uh, you know, it pretty much started. The inspiration for it started at Winter Solstice 1999. And Sonatum and Liftar were sitting under the big top at Winter Solstice playing this song at the feet of the teacher, which was about Yogi G. I heard it was very beautiful. And they wrote some very beautiful music together, both, both very etheric with the way they approach music. And I was going by and I said, hey, mind if I get my guitar and join in? And I joined in. And before you know it, all three of us are crying. It was so beautiful. And I had a 1.30 a.m. slot in the Ransabai. This is the 1999 winter solstice. And I said, hey, would you guys consider staying up and playing with me, playing this stuff with me in our slot? And they did. And we played and almost everybody was asleep when I started, but one after another, people's head would pop up and it was so beautiful. We were all crying. That was really the start of Spirit Voyage because at the end of that, literally at two in the morning, as we're out in the area where all the shoes are, I said to them, you know what? Let's let's record together. I'll finance the whole project. Let me talk to Sing in Phoenix, see if I can arrange it. I'll buy you guys tickets. And that's how Spirit Voyage got started. The third weekend in January 2000, at the beginning of the new millennium, Liptar, Sonatum, and I went to Phoenix and we had a magical weekend. And that's when I realized that Sonatum was like an extraterrestrial. You know, because I remember when she started singing in, in his studio, I was like, Liptar and I were, you know, standing because you would record one at a time. And we were, we both saw all this light around her. And, uh, you know, I knew she had a special gift. And I knew I had to be instrumental in getting it out there. Mm -hmm. So the first three albums we did were Peace Family albums were the three of us together. They're very well-kept secrets, but they're out there. You know, one was, the first one was called Reunion. Then we did one, uh, oh God, can I, oh, then we did one that was mainly her composition to heaven and beyond. It was all the different names of God. And then we did one called Carry Us Home, which uh, uh, in reunion, Carry Us Home, we each brought two or three songs that we had written and we all joined in and helped each other record each other's songs. So it was a beautiful time. But then I met Thomas Barkey and Al Guru Singh. Got all my case, said, Gurganesh, you've been promising me for years we're going to do an album, and you're doing albums with Liptar and Sonata. What about us? I thought, I said, well, I'll tell you what, I'm coming to LA in, uh, for Baisaki. So why don't you see if you can uh, find us a, a studio and a bass player? I'll finance the project and we'll make an album. Sure enough, he said, I got the guy who was one of his students, was Thomas Barkey. I don't know if you know about Thomas, who was the main producer behind all of Synonym's most successful solo albums. So we went there um, and, and, and I went there first and I worked with Guru Singh. He brought in Seal to sing on the album. Yeah. Well, and uh, and uh, finally, I said, you know, I think it would be really good if we got Synonym on the album. But I wanted Synonym 
I thought Liv Singh did a great job, but Thomas had a special gift for bringing out the best in a vocalist. Mm. And I said, you know, and I said, you know, let's get Sonatam out here. I want her to experience Thomas Barkey as a producer. Mm. And uh, she came out to record on a couple of my songs and uh, uh, that were on that album, Carry Us Home. That almost uh, six of the songs were produced by Liv in Phoenix and two of the songs were produced in L.A. Mm. And after that, both Thomas and I said, you know what? Sonatam's the star here. We need to do some a solo, at least a solo album. And I want Thomas, I told Thomas, I want you to produce it. So that was tough. But uh, because she's a very loyal person. She and didn't very... want to leave Liv, meaning? Yeah, yeah. He's she a family business person. He's family, he's a producer. But after she came out and did that weekend, and she's singing on Hummy Hum on the Game of Chance, that album, which I don't know. That was heard. Guru Singh's album, right? Yeah, it was actually Guru Singh, myself, and Thomas Barkey. Got it, got it. Together, but most of the material he wrote, and we decided, hey, you know, we defer. We called it Guru Singh's and Friends. We were the friends with, with Seal, with Got special guest Seal. He kept telling us he was going to bring Seal, and we're like, sure you are, you're going to bring Seal. And sure enough, he brought Seal. <laughs> Seal recorded for two or three hours and just was phenomenal. Did mm -hmm. two or three takes on three or four songs. If you listen to that album, the I Am on that album is a classic that would seal kind of. But in any event, Sonatum sings with seal on Hummy Hum, even though they were recorded at different times. And we were listening to that. Thomas and I were listening to that and go, wow, she held her own with seal here. You know? We got to do a solo Sonata album. And that's when her career started to take off. We we produced Prem in LA, Spared mm. Ball, meaning me at the time, financed the project. And then there was a series of solo albums, which, and uh, we started to tour. Liptar was going to tour with us at the beginning, but he got sick. You know, he went through a period of at least a decade where he was having, you know, this rapid heartbeat kind of a thing. So, it ended up being Sonatam and I primarily, and we would take different people with us. Christian, who's now Phoenix Quinn, was, uh, went with us on a bunch of tours as our tabla player. We later on had folks from the Osho community, Manish Vyas, and we went through a lot of different percussionists. And so, so for 11 years, we were touring. That's when I sold Spirit Voyage about 04 to cut in. I retained maybe 10, 11%. She wanted me to. But she became the the majority stockholder and took over. And it was a great move because she's done a wonderful job with it. And she runs the company with a lot of heart chakra. She has a great entrepreneurial mind, but she has a big heart, compassionate heart, too. So that, yeah, that, and a love for our community, you know, so to actually like carry on this foundation of what you had created and to be able to yeah. pass something like that on, all you ever wish for is that you can pass it on to someone that can create take what you created and make it even more of what it stood for and she did do that even into satnam fest and all the things that yeah and it's i mean spirit voyage is still going strong it's primarily back to being a record label produced yeah. i rolled out an album last year on the spirit voyage label called mm. uh, born to be loved 
which has my song on it that, uh, that we're going to play today. I yeah. want to go back and just say, wow, that Prem album was beautiful. Hearing this history of you witnessing who Snotum was in kind of real time as a musician and also probably a recognition of like one has to be seen, right? One has to be seen for the potential yeah. of what you can be and to have that level of fostering happening around you, whether it was you and Thomas, hearing these stories of how those first albums, I know there are a lot of listeners that have been touched by these albums, Prem and the ones following. There are um, millions and millions and millions of downloads for those early albums. They still continue to this day. There was Prem, there was uh, 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 Shanti, Shanti. There was Grace. There was Anand. There was Liberation. Anand, yep. Grace, Liberation. And these and were all produced by Thomas. And uh, he just created this sound cloud underneath her voice. Mm. And he doesn't get enough credit for her success. I mean, she mm. gets the most credit and deserves it. I deserve a little credit, too. Absolutely. But Barkey is a brilliant producer. And uh, my be my best album or the album that gets the most downloads called A Thousand Sons he produced. Interesting. Paloma Davy. Mm. And you brought up um, you, Christian, who's now Phoenix Quinn. And uh, there's just so much that happened during those days. It's also simultaneously in the timeline. This is a period of time where Kundalini Yoga worldwide is getting a lot of traction. And so this music. Oh, teachers training. I mean, there was. I can't tell you how many hundreds of people came to the concerts first, you know, primarily the, you know, Arc Sonatum and I, our concerts, but also Narendran started to do some touring, Mirabai Seba. And we were all telling people, you know, wow, they love the sound current. They love the music. Who are you guys? Kind of like my initial. That's right. Uh, and we would tell sto adoring stories about Yogi Bhajan on stage. I can't tell you how many people I'd run into at solstices who would say, Gurganesh, I'm here because of your concert in Ottawa or your concert. Yes. We, we toured the world. At one point, we were doing delivering about 75 to 100 full-scale concerts a year for about a five, six-year period. She got a little burned out from touring, you know. I can I, only I imagine. A, uh, yeah, it was tough on her. I was a total touring addict. <laughs> I'm a gypsy um, at heart, and I love to be on the road. Well, it's interesting. In the mid-2000s, um, I remember uh, being here in Chicago. I was heavy in my own sales business, and I came to one of your guys' concert, and I remember being able to see Snada. This must have been around 2005, five six, because my dad was um, sick, and she had a close relationship with my dad, and so she knew him. And so being at that concert, being able to cry yeah. while chanting – um, being able to know you and know him, her on stage, being able to just kind of, it was, it's for me, it's the way that the nostalgia of the family and the community has always pulled us back in, even no matter how far away you get. And it was that reminder, like, oh my God, this is where I need to be because it gave me that closeness, that sense of connectivity. And when you're going through yeah. hard times in your life, you're seeking something, you're seeking for a stable ground. And I would say that, you know, starting when Spirit Voyage started, and I started to kind of fulfill that part of me that felt empty. Music became my dharma. Yeah. And and uh, and uh, the the people that would come to the concerts and then hang out with us afterwards and take care of us all over the world, that really became, uh, you know, a, a, an important part of my spiritual community. I tell you, there wasn't, I have no regrets about that 
time period at all. There wasn't, I don't think, an evening where I wasn't sitting to Sonatum's right playing the guitar, where at some point in the evening, tears would start pouring out of my eyes because things would get to a level or she would start improving beautiful English lyrics. It was just, there wasn't one concert that we didn't. We did hundreds of concerts mm -hmm. that tears weren't pouring down my cheeks. So it was a beautiful period. And, and when we parted ways in 2011 in terms of touring together, because she said, Gurganesha, I wanted to do more up-tempo music. And she was getting more and more into the mellow, more and more sensitive music, which I enjoyed. But there was, and she said, Gurganesha, you got to go out and do your rock and roll thing. And we agreed to part ways. We parted ways amicably. We're still really good friends. But, you know, she has provided healing. Through the, through the sound current, through her voice to a lot, a lot of people around the world. A lot of people who don't even know what 3HO is, listen to her music, you know. We absolutely know that's true. And what I'm hearing you also say is that through this music, through this platform you created, um, you and her and Thomas um, perhaps were the entry point for a lot of people to get into the marketing funnel of Kundalini Yoga and the pathway of, of Sikh Dharma. And at the time you think that's actually a beautiful, mystical, amazing thing. Like, wow, yeah. can this right be a help the channel? And I want to just say that not just you all, but just that on a scale of how Kundalini yoga has branded itself over the years, our musicians are one of them that we are known to be of this musician group. And even people that had left the Dharma years ago could still have this connection to a musician or somebody that the music was good, even if they didn't do the practice. Well, the Kulsa String Band, they were they were fabulous. They were younger and maybe, uh, you know, uh, in reading Peter's book and so forth, I think they were still struggling with uh, the, the egoic part of the self, which we all have. But uh, it, it was it was hard. I think the band maybe didn't stay together because they just got to the point where they couldn't reach consensus on stuff. But uh, somehow- but it also sounded like YB entered himself into that a little bit because he didn't want them to get more big than him. Um, Perhaps, I don't know all was... the details, but the music was pretty fabulous. But Those you are, bring it back I to the foundation. Feeling, I remember feeling kind of envious that, how come I'm not on the Kulsa string band? I was the guy that was sent to the communities when the Liptar would, you know, went on the road to you know, hold the fort down at the ashram, you know? So. Uh, yeah. And it's interesting you bring it back there. Cause I was acknowledging the Kundalini music kind of in present day or at the time that you and Snotum were touring and kind of how the pinnacle of, of like, wow, those Kundalini yogi musicians, whether it was Mirabai or whether it's Narinjan or, or Snotum or you or or just all of what was happening. It was it was quite literally like an exponential growth period of Kundalini yoga from 2000 forward. The music was helping that a lot. But then you I remember thinking, I remember thinking we're creating such amazing sound current and I'd sit in the tantric lines and I'd go, I'd be like this, gritting my teeth. I said, can't we replace it? I, I remember even talking to Sad Simran. No, no, no. We got it's got to stay the same exactly the way it says. Wow. But actually, a couple of Sonatum stuff 
made it into made it. <laughs> let's pause and just really talk about why this is so important because every tantric it was so bad because we would hear the 80s synthesizer of music that all of us knew snotum car and you all had a better version like can you right, please right. replace this and so they did eventually right like the bountiful blissful beautiful right certain ones got filled in with whether it was sirgun um they were kind just, of smuggled in by yeah slowly. <laughs> I didn't want the word out that this was uh, uh, possible because all the other musicians were kind of frustrated because that's the way you got your music heard the most. If you had fifteen hundred people at tantric and they played something for thirty-one minutes, you're like this, and the music is the only thing that's keeping you going. Wow, this is so beautiful to hear how how this early um, startup of of growing Snotums um, and your partnership and all that, and even just witnessing her because again, yeah, her voice has graced so many of us. Um, so then that, that explodes. Acknowledge her too. It's been very hard for her. Oh uh, God, and you no. could only see it. I mean, you could see it in her letter, the duplicity that she's wrestling with. I can only imagine. Yeah, and it's it's been extremely hard because also, you know, she's a real believer in kundalini yoga. And uh, of course, Kirtan, they have a, a school now, Kirtan and Kundalini. And I've been a substitute teacher there a few times. But, you know, uh, I mean, uh, it's just so hard when you've crafted and cultivated an entire life around an identity, yeah. right? That then that identity has to get examined. There's just no easy unwind. I commend her. Um for just speaking to the complexity of it, right? She had friends and sisters, like you had spoken about women that called you directly. I know she did as well. They called her to some of the they same. They called her directly, called her. exactly. So they, it's like- We got friends when we were touring all those years and and she just, you know, it, it was very hard for her to get to the point where it was, but it would just talking to her friends and, you know, the kind of conversations you can have, heart to heart conversations. Yeah, and these are sisters. These are people she knows since she yeah. was a child in this community. So one of the things that I don't think people who join the community as yoga students, even if they have large stints from two to 10 to 20 years, one thing I don't think they fully understand about being born and bred. And, and I say born and bred because even though you're a first gen and you join this, this group of you that came in your early 20s, a lot of that early development is still born and bred in a way. It started so early and the influence that happens when you join something from your 20s and stay into your 50s, we're talking about some of the earliest developmental years and probably on top of family compacted family trauma that was never addressed, like you're talking about the death of your father. So I just, again, go back to big space and grace, you know, to think that the way that Snotum should handle this is anywhere close to the way you're handling this is an illusion, just like the way that you handle this should be anywhere close to the way I handle this. And I oftentimes right. see that kind spectrum. of, it's, it's so wide, wide and you see these opinions that come out that says, well, how come she hasn't done this? Or how come so-and-so hasn't done this? Yeah. And it is true that the larger public figure you are, the more responsibility you also have to have to speak to what is happening. Yeah. And so silence isn't an option and neutrality isn't an option. And we can also hold you in the complexity that says, I have no idea what to do and I am trying to figure it yeah. out. Yeah, and maybe I, I actually, I've got it maybe about 10 minutes. I have a Zoom call to dial into at five. We've been talking for, it's been <laughs> fun. I hate to- Who knew? Who knew? Yeah. But so when it hit, 
And I and I started talking to people and doing the listening tours. It was overwhelming, and I and I realized that it happened. And uh, and these Pause. Stories- you're saying the listening tours that happened was in 2020 when the Tulsa Council meeting yeah. turned into a bunch of people's stories. Okay, so but it was one on one conversation that were even more powerful for me, where you just one on one with somebody you know who is a credible person, and they're sharing with you in in. Words and tears intermixed, you know, because they it was like an unburdening. And they were also explaining. I didn't even have to ask. They were explaining why they kept it secret for so long. And, uh, you know, there were a lot. They were promised. Some of them were promised, uh, you know, prom- you know, there was the carrot and the stick. There was the, either you're going to be the next Mahan Tantric or you're going to be this or you're going to be that. Stick with me. I'll take care of you. Showered with jewels and this and this. Or you're going to come back for 108 million lives again, starting as a crawling creature. That was fear. That was the stick. And uh, but you know, when you think of it, it it was to me. I when it finally dawned on me that this stuff happened, it was a huge. I felt it was a huge betrayal of trust. A huge betrayal of trust. And. Uh, um, I mean, there were I had I cried a lot, and my poor Madam Undercar. I mean, barely slept for weeks. She, I'd wake up and she'd be crying in the middle of the night because she realized it was all true too, and it was devastating. And um, wow, you know, I and uh, you know, I realized you know, hypocrisy is not a good strategy if mm-hmm. you want a spiritual path to live and grow. And that was pretty intense hypocrisy going on right on to the whole, you you know, when you read in the AOB report about he made women shave their private parts, you know, I got talked into taking Amrit. It was, you know, uh, my buddy saw Katar Singh, who's been my band for years, was dropped from a a Punj Piari at at Solstice because he acknowledged that he had clipped his, uh, you know, uh, nose hairs because he didn't like the way they looked. And that was, uh, you know, a repudiation of his Khalsa hood. And then when we started to hear all this other stuff, it's just, and then the whole myth of infallibility that so many folks are still holding on to, you know, I, these are not bad people. I understand they've been holding on to this for 50, their whole identity is so intertwined with their love of Yogi G. Yeah. And uh, so I, you know, for a while I was like kind of angry at them. I just don't, I feel more compassionate towards them now than anger. And I figure, well, all right, I'm, you know, I'm doing my, my part here. And uh, I've been right from the beginning, I've been pretty outspoken. It was probably mid, late February where I did my first post on social media. The whole Gurganesha band did a post saying, we believe our women. This is immediately in 2020. You were one of the most, most vocal. Absolutely. Um, but when you're speaking about some of these early people, I want people to really hear that, you know, some of these folks that are, quote, the denier group, we're talking about some really entrenched belief systems that go all the way back to to your early friendships. Yeah. Lip saying, look at some of the newest board members. I don't know some of their names. 
Um, but you can look at some of the starch denier people that are basically saying none of this ever occurred. These are people that go back to your earliest friendships, that early music with Livtar, oh, yeah. right? And, and I, that- I still love them all. I, I'm not sure if I like them anymore, but I still love them. I, I'm kind of into, at least for the time being, loving them from a distance. Yeah, and, which is sometimes uh, what we have to do. Well, one of the reasons I resigned from Culse, and you know, I've been kind of hanging in there, even though three years ago, uh, I was approached about being part of the CRC. And at the time, I, I know who the, the, the quote, students of Yogi Bhajan uh, were. I'd known most of these people since my early days, and I knew they were hardcore. They weren't going to change their minds. So I remember having a conversation, maybe it was Sahed who called me, wanted me to become part of the CRC. And I said, you know, I'll become part of the CRC if our intention is to work out some kind of amicable divorce, because uh, uh, basically, uh, what's, what do they call that? Uh, uh, a lot of marriages end because of, there's a phrase, uh, irreconcilable differences. Differences. <laughs> I said, Sahed, these, I know these people, they're not going to change their tune. These differences are irreconcilable. Let's take all this time, energy, and resource, see if we can work out a way to split into two entities. Mm. Let them go do whatever they want. If they want to stay exactly the same and continue to deify Yogi G, that's up to them. That's none of my business. Yeah. But I can't be part of that. And so when, you know, the reason I immediately announced my resignation from the organizations, not our local community. That's a whole other story. We're kind of hanging in there and kind of learning how to disagree in a non-disagreeable way. And we still run a Gurdwara together. It's, as you said earlier, Herndon is a very unique community, you know? And it's not like I, I'm able to, t- just Sunday, Madamundra and I did uh, played uh, in the Gurdwara for over an hour. And at the end, well, uh, you know, uh, Gertrand came to play Song of the Khalsa. And, you know, he's part of the students of Yogi Bhajan. We don't talk too much. But he looked at me as we're leaving the stage like, hey, Gurganesh, play with me. We looked at each other. I said, okay, Bapuji. I used to call him Bapuji all the time. And we played and the music melted our hearts. You know, and this keeps happening. When Karam Singh passed away, you know, Gursimran's husband, uh, I, I was invited to be part of the music for the memorial service, even though they were kind of, you know, they lived in our house with Madamunder and I in the 90s. And we loved them. We visit them down there. But they they continued. They, they were still kind of solidly students of Yogi Bhajan. But something happened during the memorial service where hearts started to melt again. And it was like, because my point was, uh, you know, on a certain level, one issue here we've been a family for all these years and we have to agree on everything to continue to be a family it was hard to to comprehend but it's a pretty core issue isn't it well it's a tough one because we're talking about not acknowledging people's harm and these are people we love so it's kind of like saying there's some things you can agree to disagree on and then there's other things that are like wow i think for my well-being i think i have to have healthy boundaries so are you cutting them off or are you just protecting yourself and it's a it's a complex thing this is why we need support and therapy um 
And you're bringing up really good things like Guru Chong Singh. I lived at his house when I lived in your guys' ashram. What an amazing, beautiful hearted man. And to witness him being on that denier side, to watch his son speak out and say, my father's on this denier side. This is really hard. And these things, there's not an easy unpack of these things because just because you're starting to have more of yourself doesn't mean you don't want to have these relationships you formed over 40, 50 years. Exactly. And just because I don't want to be part of Kulsa Council anymore and knock my head forward against the wall until it's bleeding or be a, quote, minister, which I haven't really related to. I mean, I only became a minister because I wanted some status as a young man. <laughs> right. You needed a title. He was given the yeah, I needed a title. Now, to be on the Kulsa Council, you got to be a minister. Well, maybe I was a minister with the music out there for decades. It sounds like you ministered a lot better through your own ministry. But in order to fit in, right, to follow the Joneses, why be created a system in which, of course, if you're not following that system, then you're not being dharmic. So it's not like your ego spoke. It's more like he said, you need a title. Get yourself a title. Um So um, is there anything more that you want to make sure you include in this interview in terms of um, you've shared with us where you've come from since 2020? You definitely were really vocal. You and Mara Munder are going through your own process. But this most recent election, you cut yourself off from being a part of the larger organizations because, you know, with those people in charge, it's just going to be a stalemate. Yeah, I wanted to say that early on, like 2020, March, April, May, I was talking to some of the people in the community that were kind of on the students of Yogi Bhajan side. And several of them after they, you know, several of them called me, well, you know, why you that, that, that. And after I would talk to them, they would seem like they believed it. But then they'd get back into their circle. And then all of a sudden, I'm not to be talked to anymore because uh, it's toxic. It's toxic to talk to Guru Ganesha, who is supporting his sisters, his daughters, his sons in the community. I'm a father and a grandfather in the community. And, uh, you know, it's one thing to be loyal to your spiritual teacher. I think it's even more important to be loyal to your sisters and your daughters and your sons. To your children. And uh, so that's why... I continue. I've done some of the, I've done three uh, podcasts with Porter Singer, you know, formerly. Yeah. And uh, from a young gentleman from Japan who studied Kundalini yoga, but he wanted to talk about this. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, if I get invited, I'll, I'll usually accept, but the big thing I, you know, I just, uh, I, I want to put my energies into you know, second gen and third gen. And if any, and, and I want, I, I would consider being part of an organization not run by my, me or my generation. I don't want to have anything to do with leadership. If it was, you know, I've always, you know, Cutting, Sanatum, Christian, I've always been trying to push second gen people. My son, I helped him start Bright Star. That's what I want to do now. I don't want to be a leader. I just want to help and be of support to our great second gen and third gen now. I don't care if they're still in 3HO, out of 3HO, wherever they are. I understand both the whole spectrum, you know, but they're beautiful souls like yourself. Thank you. 
and and thank you for your voice. I don't think we see enough adults speaking out, and I say adults of that first gen, um, but of anybody who joined this community to speak out enough. And um, it's not an easy thing when you're in your own process. So we just really appreciate you having a voice for survivors, but also being transparent about you and your wife's process of what what do we do now? You know, who is my identity now? And this yeah. thing, this isn't an easy thing. And you continue to uh, show up vulnerably and letting us see you. And I think it um, it really helps a lot. So thank you. Tell us about why you chose the song we're about to hear. Oh, yeah. I'm just checking to see if that Zoom link came in. It hasn't, I, I, I can't imagine if Frank's probably still, <laughs> hopefully they won the game and they're celebrating, you know. He's um, waiting for a call and we've been talking so yeah. long that he was like, oh man, conflict. This album, recent album, Born to be Loved, it was, it was a product of the pandemic and all the revelations. And I've there's two cover songs on there. One is uh, uh, a Landslide written by Stevie Nicks, performed by her band uh, Fleetwood Mac in 1974. I always loved the song, but it has so much, it had, when I, you know, Cutton suggested to me, maybe it was her husband, Gabe, said, Gurganesha, have you looked at, listen to Landslide at all lately? And I was like, well, if Gabe brought it up, let me do it. He also suggested the other cover. I still haven't found what I'm looking for, the U2 song that's on that album. Oh. And I listened to Landslide. I'm in tears. I was. I felt it so described what had happened to me. You know, I felt like a landslide had happened. It was almost like the earth kind of just crumbled beneath my feet. And I was like, you know, you'll even see, I sent you that link with a, uh, a, uh, it's almost like uh, Cutton had this this artist to a cartoon version of me. Of you. <laughs> With a and purple it, turban and your yellow guitar. It was really dope. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but uh, the chorus part that goes, well, I've been afraid of changing because I built my life around you. When I sang that part, I was thinking, uh, you know, I, I'm afraid of changing because I built my life around Yogi Bhajan and the Dharma. And then the next line in the chorus goes, but time makes you bolder, even children get older. Yeah. And the whole song though, if you see it through the prism of what we all were going through. And that's why I wanted it to, you know, I felt a little shameless about having the song be my own recording. But I think if you listen, my heart is coming through the lyrics. I got very emotional recording this song. Some of the takes we couldn't use because I didn't even get through the tears were coming out of my eyes, you know. I do. I do. So in any event, that song is very meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. Thank you for bringing us it and you and your tears um, and the confusion, you know, what that, what the, when you sent me the link, I had listened to the song when it had come out because I listened to your music when it comes out. Um, but when you sent me the link specifically, and of course I listened to it in the context, but now I really listened to it within the context, understanding that this was an emotional yeah. recording for you. And I was able to really, um, feel the context of like, whoa, if these words are in relation to this Dharma or why be at the center of it. 
And so because it's your song, we're going to play the whole thing. Normally we don't because it's copyrighted. Wow. <laughs> and, and I think it's only like three minutes and 50 seconds. <laughs> and if you not don't like have the time, old pre-HO songs that were 15 minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> they were, you know, tantric style. No, right, but, right, um, exactly. but normally we only listen to like 30 seconds of the song. And then I have a playlist that people can listen to the full song. But in this case, we're going to use this as just a way to seal this episode. I think that you um, covered some really important um, uh, nuance and also um, complexity that lives in the hearts of so many of us, but also the longer you've been in, the more it lives in you because there are simultaneous timelines of happening. You know, you have a trajectory of different levels of growth while other things are happening. And so in 2020, when these things came forward, I remember having a conversation with you where you were like, whoa, I see you know, Gurdarshan, a call size mom's choice differently now. And it's like, you're seeing the same thing that you always saw. You're just seeing it through a new pocket or lens. And that's not an easy thing to allow yourself to do. And so your willingness to do that or Mata Munder's willingness to do that means you're willing to let some of these identities that have bolstered you up shed. Mm. And so your recognition of saying, I know these guys and they're not willing to do that. So yeah not now and not anytime soon. So what's the reconcile? What are we reconciling here? I'm not going to put my life force to something that's irreconcilable. You're saying that is so powerful because we have to only be there for our own process and our willingness to poke at our own identities. It's mm. so much easier to point and poke at other people's identities and saying, well, why are you still doing that? Well, why are you still doing that? And it's like, yo, there's a bazillion reasons why, but you don't really know somebody until you hear their story. Uh, that was so beautifully summarized, and uh, I, I sincerely hope that this is of service to some folks out there. It really is. People listen. And again, one last thing I wanted to point out is that you brought up how right now a part of you and Modern Mother's process is you're still local in your community. You resign from these kind of larger kind of ministerial roles as if that's doing something and instead putting your attention to the relationships of your everyday existence. And some of these people in your everyday community are on the students of Yogi Bhajan side. And what that means is they're not learning or listening to any survivor stories to any of the children that have been born in the community community that have stories of abuse, sometimes in cases, not even their own children. And what you are putting your heart and energy into is where can we connect, right? Right. And this learning to communicate recently, yes. else who's my co-author in this recent book, she brings this up. She brings up how a lot of people in the Dharma right now are currently learning to communicate when you have differences of opinion, because we've grown up in this community being dictated, right. not communicating. Yeah. And so there, it's yeah. actually real skills of saying, oh, you disagree. I disagree. Nobody has to be wrong and we don't have to fight. And then we there's no dictator to look at to say who what we do. It's profound what you said, like we're learning to communicate. Yeah, yeah, we've actually gotten to a point where things are somewhat cordial again. with And people just, you know, are like, uh, we're agreeing to disagree. And we had some very, you know, uh, heated administrative council meetings here in the early days of 2020. But people are like now, all right, hey, we're accepting that we're all different. And uh, there's a lot of commonality still, even people who have a whole different view of YB. There's still a lot of commonality, especially we still like to sing. 
Well, I think it's important to distinguish what's going on here because from a cult perspective, I want folks to hear that as you do cultic studies and you start learning about high demand groups, you can see that we're right in that formula of a high demand group. And it's very, very normal for people that are fully, fully entrenched in the organization to not be able to see that as a formula because they only see it as a personal path. And so the more of us that start unplugging, listening to the stories, you know, there is a place where you can agree to disagree. And then there's a place where you just have to hold people in their limited scope of reality. And that's different. You just keep them there. You love them where they are. It doesn't, it doesn't mean you're trying to convince them of something that's their process. But when somebody doesn't believe the sadistic abuse of harm of people we love, it's just like racist actions. You don't really disagree to agree to disagree when it comes to racism. You just, you no longer bring up certain topics in interface with certain people at certain times. You have discernment. Yeah. It gets, um, speaking of yeah. which, I actually just got the link, so I've, I've got to uh, forgive. It's fine. Thank you so much for your time here. I'm going to move into playing your song, and we'll have you here in spirit with us. And thank you so much for your time um, of being here and your voice. And also um, just the grandfatherly love that you continue to express to all of us that really are realizing we grew up much more orphaned than we ever realized. And mm. so it, it really does mean something and it matters to us and we hear you. So thank you. Is that now? Love you, Gurnishan Carl. <laughs> Love you. Thank all. you for such a beautiful experience talking. It is so my pleasure. Thank you again. All right. We are moving into listening to Guru Ganesha's landslide recording. And here we go. It is so beautiful. And let us begin. I took my love, I took it down. I climbed the mountain and I turned around And I saw my reflection in the snow-covered hills Till the landslide brought me down Oh, mirror in the sky, what is love? Can the child within my heart rise above? Can I sail through the changing ocean tides? Can I handle the seasons of my life?
afraid of changing cause I built my life around you but time makes you bolder even children get older and I'm getting In the snow-covered hills Will the landslide bring it down? And if you see my reflection In the snow-covered hills Will the landslide bring it down? Guru Ganesha Singh on his album Landslide. Um, what a beautiful, beautiful recording. Thank you for that. And I want to just again thank Guru Ganesha Singh for bringing his voice and, and his wisdom here and his willingness to speak vulnerably about very tough, um, complex, nuanced aspects of how we extract ourselves um, and find the good and allow ourselves to feel the pain of what has and continues to happen in this 3HO community. Um, I want to remind you of the recent publication of Under the Yoga Mat, The Dark History of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga. It was published by Els Kunin and myself. Um, my extracts from some of our uncomfortable conversations have been included into her publication. And we've decided to collaborate on this project in um, a way that really tried to uplift and support and center survivors um, and not write about survivors or write about this community, but rather to expose what has always been in plain sight, but many of us have chosen not to see. So um, I can't do encourage you enough to get that book because what it does is it helps us explain the complexity when people aren't listening and they're not looking and they need to. Um, this book is a really excellent um, way to be able to uh, get all the information in one manuscript. Um, she else's research and organizational background has allowed her to be able to collect all the myriad of information that has been in the public domain since the 70s, lectures of YB, extracts from this podcast, as well as other podcasts, and weaving these stories together through the multiple timelines that are occurring um, all within the same time frame. So it's really a work of art. Um, I can't encourage you to get it enough. It can help you to help those people that you know that are still teaching, that are entrenched, that don't even know where to begin to, to look or listen. It's a really, really excellent starting place. It's also 
really helpful for anybody um, in or outside of 3HO to really understand how spiritual abuse happens. Um, Guru Ganesha painted such a beautiful picture around how you're just, you're committed to a lifestyle. And before you know it, you're noticing some corrupt things happening, but you do the best you can to make better choices and to move along. And Else really paints that picture through this book um, with her organizational research style. I can't um, amplify it enough because where do you begin when somebody doesn't know that Kundalini yoga is infiltrated with sadistic, horrible abuse? Where do you point them? Yeah, you could point them to my podcast. Yeah, you could point them to some articles by Philip DeSlip, but there's a lot, right? There's a lot. And so this allows you to digestibly start chewing and gnawing on the tsunami of, of historical darkness that lives in the white and light washed community called 3HO, Kundalini Yoga, Sikh Dharma of the Western Hemisphere. So thank you for that work, Else, and um, all the survivors on the Uncomfortable Conversations and other places. When you bring your voice forward, it helps to explain the long, dark history of this community. And your voice adds to a much larger web or tapestry that's being revealed. So um, get that book. All of the proceeds will go to children survivors of abuse and survivors of cult abuse so um support this work and i know it will support you to not be duplicitous in how you get this word out there um, i want to reiterate that we don't agree to disagree when harm like abuse and rape and grooming of children and racism and homophobia are happening okay this is an agree to disagree you can have an ideology belief system around how you want to live your sexual life, but it's not okay to be homophobic and abuse others for their choices. So this isn't agree to disagree material. What we can absolutely do is respect people where they're at. Everybody's process is not the same process. Everybody's healing is not the same healing and it doesn't look the same, taste the same, smell the same. And we can absolutely put up healthy boundaries I want you to know that it's absolutely okay to cut yourself off from people that are not willing to look at the everyday reality of truth, especially if that's what's best for your mental health and well-being. But you do that for you. You don't do that against them because there's a difference. When you do something for your own well-being, it empowers you to find yourself. When you do it against them, it's actually feeding resentment. And I'm not here to tell you the difference but I want you to listen to this conversation again with Guru Ganesha. It's very filled with nuance and challenge, challenge around somebody who's willing to look at themselves after 40, 50 years of making choices that he always thought was in his highest and best interests and in the highest and best interests of, of humanity and changing consciousness. So to suddenly realize that many, many, many of your choices were not in service of humanity or consciousness, but rather in service of hypocrisy and abuse, it's a very intense thing to let yourself deflate. And Guru Ganesha is just a beautiful, loving, heart-filled example of, um, of a one way to do that. So thank you for being, and thank you all for listening. Um, as always, please uh, support this podcast. You can go to gurunishan.com and make a donation. Uh, the link for my uh, PayPal donation is right in the show notes. The link for getting under the no yoga mat book will be in the show notes as well. And um, you can listen to the Uncomfortable Conversations playlist to hear that song again. 
This has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. Once again, if you'd like to contribute to this broadcast, you can make a one-time or monthly donation. Head on over to gurunishan.com. And if you'd like to be a guest on my podcast, please send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. You can subscribe, follow, and support my provocative truth-telling work at my website, gurunishan.com. And I launched my new podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations on Predatory Patterns in Business, Community, and Culture. And we've expanded the conversation to um, child sexual abuse of young boys, to Native American Indigenous erasure, to well-meaning white people, and many other topics, including multi-level marketing and other commercial cults. But it's a much larger platform, so please head on over and listen to my media platform called Conversations You Can Feel. And I both write and podcast there, and feel free to join in on the fun. Um, if you, again, want to be a podcast guest on this podcast, shoot me an email and let me know you got a story. I am always here for the 3HO story uh, telling. This is a very different platform for me. It's about holding space for very um, tough conversations that each of us um, oftentimes don't even know how to reveal outside of the secret corners of our own mind. I want you to know that's not unique to you. We got trained into that. And so to feel safe enough to ever tell your story is a beautiful thing. You may never get there in this lifetime, but if you do, I want you to know I'm an open space, reach out and you can tell your story here. Thank you again for your listening support. Please share this with a friend. Thanks again, Guru Ganesha Singh. And for all of your listening and loving support, folks, have a good time. And I'll talk to you on the next episode.